this week on Crossing Streams, Legion, The Expanse, and anytime I see anything that Zack Snyder does, even in small quantities, I feel like my soul is being farted on and then stomped on. I don't think Zack Snyder pays people to light his movies. I think he just doesn't believe in lighting because everything (laughs) is black and takes place in an alley. We are going to talk about everyone's favorite DC superhero, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, Supergirl. Hell yeah. And if it's not your favorite, it's definitely the best of the TV bunch. Kevin Sorbo, that fucking asshole, we'll get to that later. Can we just mention him by his character's name and forget that he's a religious, anti-Semitic, anti-gay douchebag? Supergirl, to me, is head and shoulders above Arrow and Flash. I'm at the point where I can't watch Arrow, I can barely watch Flash, and I love every minute of Supergirl. I'm smiling, I'm laughing, I'm really engaged. Their writing team is just way better than the other writing teams. I do really like this ensemble cast. I think it's probably the cast I like the most. So why can't you make Iris a superhero? I don't want to hear about the comics. You know? I mean... (laughs) No, I'm serious. They're asking, do you even remember what language the incantation was in? And he goes, Aramaic! And, uh... Jack says, how do you even know what Aramaic is? Passion of the Christ. Good movie. (laughs) And my falling out with Arrow, which is starting to feel like a Shakespearean play of tragedy (laughs) with Arrow. By the way, Ezra Miller Mm -hmm. looks like MK's older brother. Yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Doesn't he? So the question is going to be, who's going to have the douchier face? I mean, it's it's a, it's a real sh- long shot. Ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to the Crossing Streams podcast. Here we go. Oi, oi, streamers. Welcome to Crossing Streams, episode 11. I am here with Matt. Uh, Matt, welcome, as always. I'm, I'm going to throw it to you uh, for your title of the week for Crossing Streams, episode 11. Do you mind if I do my sort of unofficial one for the week? Go ahead. Want to do yours first? Yeah, let me let me do uh, first. You doing okay? Everything good in, in the world of Matty G? Absolutely. It's uh, mostly just rainy and crappy uh, here on the Cape, which is kind of lousy because we've started the spring sports season and I'd rather be covering games than yeah. sitting in the office, but yeah. such is the case with New England spring. So you got me thinking, you know, as we get into the double digits here, we have to get more creative with the titles and you talked about, you know, episodes um, right. from a series and of course, I think we should make it either season by season or the overall series fair game you know we want to mm-hmm. go for the best possible title um, I do kind of sure. like the idea of doing it over the course of a series so if it's 10 episodes a season that season 2 episode 5 would actually be episode 15 I think is cool. exactly so you got me thinking though about the very long extensive fantasy and sci-fi series that I've been reading since I was a kid okay. so uh, my unofficial title for this week's Crossing Streams is Episode 11, Rage of a Demon Stream. Okay. And th- this is based on... Uh, Dig the- it? That's a pretty metal name for an episode. Yeah. Uh, Rage of a Demon King. 
is a best-selling fantasy author and my personal favorite that's not Tolkien, Raymond E. Feist's 11th uh, entry in his Rift War cycle, um, which began with the best-selling book Magician in 1982. And he would go on to write basically a book a year for 30 years. And there were 30 books in the in the extended series, although they were broken down into to trilogies and quadrologies um, over the course of the whole thing. Um, and uh, it sold, um, I read, 15 million copies over the course of those wow. 30 books worldwide, translated cool. into like two dozen languages. So half a million books per uh, per book is pretty good. Um, I would say so, yeah. And like The Expanse, it came from an original Dungeons & Dragons style universe that he created in the 70s when he was at the University of San Diego and he asked his buddies if it was okay if he created books and they were happy to oblige and um, they've all benefited because they've made it available over the years as as a role-playing game as well. Um, But unlike Dungeons and Dragons and some of the knockoffs, they really went in a completely different direction. And uh, I I got into the series uh, in the early 90s when I was like 10, 11, 12, which is like perfect getting into fantasy age um and in fact he was contracted by a major uh, software publisher to write a story um for a computer role-playing game in the early 90s mm-hmm. which now is very common but at the time uh, never w- really happened and he wrote basically a, a huge novel and they ended up structuring the mechanics of the game completely around the story so all the mm-hmm. gameplay of the game was called betrayal at crondor and took place in the early years of uh the rift war cycle while the gameplay itself was fantastic the story was so compelling especially to one who was just getting introduced to the guy um that it it, it became one of the all-time classic rpgs uh computer rpgs and he ended up writing a three book series based on that it was so popular people wanted it in book form and so he expanded upon it and wrote made a trilogy out of it that's how extensive it was um, and, uh, what was even cooler though, man, was because you traveled over literally the entire ginormous map in this huge game that's, that's from the book. So imagine traveling all over Middle Earth in a computer game and getting to know all the towns and the people and the cultures. Then when I immersed myself in the series and started reading every single book, I had such a tactile and visual feel for this world, which was very much based on medieval, uh, France and England. Um, sort of like Game of Thrones in, in that sense. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, while they did have dark elves and dwarves and stuff, it, it was mostly human-based. And he's been, you know, both loved and criticized for having a very simple writing style. Doesn't use a lot of big words, not a lot of flowery language or descriptions. He just spins amazing yarns. And, and cool. it's, it, it's one of those uh, types of books that is what I wish young adult books were like today, mm-hmm. where even though, yes, the characters are usually young men and occasionally young women, they act like adults or people trying to be adults and not just whiny teenagers. And that makes it more interesting, it makes it more appealing, and it makes it more accessible to both youth and adults. And uh, when I read that he was wrapping up the series, because I had actually Rage, so Rage of a Demon King came out in 97, which was right around the time I was not reading much fantasy. I was getting mm-hmm. more into hard science fiction, I was reading cosmos and philosophy and astrophysics. Yep. Um, and, uh, in that 11th book, he really started exploring the connection between his version of magic and 
quantum physics, basically, for lack of a better word, although they didn't understand it in such terms. But the greatest magicians understood that magic wasn't quite magic and was based in, in you know, some advanced form of science that they couldn't understand, but they could harness or whatever. So it kind of got me back into the fantasy genre. Anyways, he wrapped up the series a couple of years ago, uh, and so I read the final um, uh, few books and then went back and read the whole thing. So he's one of my favorite, favorite writers. Um, I, I, I figured I would work in one of his titles, but this is my favorite of the books the action combined with the philosophy is just spectacular and and i again i find that his sort of more simplistic writing style um to be a, a reason to keep coming back to the books so thank you for letting me blab about that and i will <laughs> once i will just uh, as my final note here in in my part of the interest uh, talk about how it, it really is a shame that Game of Thrones is all there is in the fantasy world because there's at least a half dozen writers out there that have both the quality and the quantity uh, to be really accessible to the masses in TV or uh, film format. And I hope that uh, Lynn manuel working with Patrick Rothfuss on The Name of the mm-hmm. Wind and the yep. Kingkiller Chronicles will be the start of a, a new rebirth in fantasy. Um, I guess American Gods uh, you know, has some fantastical elements to it as well. And Neil Gaiman certainly knows his fantasy see so we will see so all right bizzlecast listeners that was the unofficial title for episode 11 matt i'm gonna pass it to you what do you got for us cool uh we'll get into game of thrones in july when it comes back on the air maybe we can talk a little bit about why it seems to be the only one really connecting with a a a mass audience um and not just fantasy fans but for this week uh my aka i don't think is as good as jesse's but i i still like it uh i am calling it don't leave me streams (laughs) which is a double reference because it is the 11th track of The Wall, which is the 11th Mm. album by Pink Floyd, which felt very appropriate to me because Legion had its season finale this week featured. It is always – I've called it the Pink Floyd of superhero TV shows, and there is, in fact, a Pink Floyd song in it. So uh, we'll get to that later this week. Uh, but honestly, I got to give it up. I think uh, Jesse takes the title on this one. Um, and if you if you want a fun time, Wikipedia, the Rift War Cycle, all of the titles of this guy's books are good. He's really um, good at titles. Yeah, yeah. he's great at titles. Uh, also, very non cheesy, classy covers over the years. Cool. One of the best maps ever. If you're into like fantasy map porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, one of the great twists of the books, and this speaks to, you know, what I love and don't love about Game of Thrones, depending on the season and the characters and the arc is for the most part, the monarchs of the main kind of human good guys are fairly uncorrupt. Now they can be ruthless and they will just kill people medieval style for being traitors, you know, or even suspected traitors sometimes, but for the most part, it's a pretty uncorrupted line of kings and princes. And what's cool is if you see it on the wiki, he tends to write in three or also four book cycles. He tells a generational jump for each one. But you, even though he moves away from just following the royalty and you start following more sort of regular people um, in the later series, you're still following the line of royalty that starts in the initial book and they inherit each other's names and qualities. And so you get your sort of, you know, royalty, 
uh, fix, but you're also getting like the common people as well. It's just an amazing world. And so occasionally when the stories, you know, not all the novels are five-star novels, you, you always have great world-building stuff to go to. So highly, highly recommended. It's funny that you should mention The Wall, because remember last week I thought you were making a Dark Side reference, and I right. said that I thought Dark Side was the um, 10th uh, book in... Or, or may have been the tenth uh, Pink Floyd album, which is why I got it's thrown not, off. It was animals. It was animals. Uh, Dark Side was eighth, um, and yep. so yeah, so you had a few albums between Dark Side and The Wall. Um, th- they've put out so many albums, but certainly P- the Dark Side uh, and uh, and The Wall are two of the greatest. Uh, I would say so. Did um, you know that about The Wall, or you were just uh, you, you did were, I know th- that The Wall was the eleventh? I mean, did you, you took that from our discussion last week about Pink Floyd and, and about Legion? Yeah, that was Legion. the inspiration. Um, and then it felt appropriate because that gave me the idea of we're going to start scrambling and we can also do right. riffs on the number of in a discography of a band that's had a lot of albums. Uh, that struck me as another potential source of longstanding series. Yes. So I thought, since it's Legion, let's look at Pink Floyd. The wall doesn't really adapt very well on its own. So then I looked at the track listings, and I came up with uh, Don't Leave Me Streams. Um, Well, well, we we always have Neil Young, who has about 50 million albums. That's true. Neil Young is a good source. I think Springsteen has gotten a bunch. Rush has a number of albums. Dylan. Um, Yep. Beatles have... Uh, we may actually be almost out of Beatles. I think albums. we're out of Beatles, but if you count if you count the post Beatles uh, album production of the of the crew, uh, might eh. be another source. So, um, all right, man. Well, why don't we lead straight from that into Legion? Yep. Um, quick question: you want to talk be- Justice League first? Oh, do you want? Okay, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna follow the Pink Floyd train to Legion, people. Uh, we we do need to mention the Justice League trailer. Um, I have to say, I, I I tried to open myself up to it, but Zach, I, anytime I see anything that Zack Snyder does, even in small quantities, I feel like my soul is being farted on and then stomped on. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I, I mean, look, for people who like the DCEU, who like the style that it has, such as it is, trailer because it doesn't seem to me like justice league is doing anything different than batman v superman is you know there are there more jokes in the trailer yeah sure there's three or four but i don't know that the whole movie is going to have jokes in it it could just as easily be that those are all the jokes in the movie just like all the jokes in batman v superman were in the trailer because like literally the only joke is is she with you i thought she was with you um and again, none of the jokes work when they're said. They f- they're spoken like lines that really broish, intense people say because they feel like they have to make a joke. None of right. the jokes feel organic. They don't feel like they're coming from people who are funny. You know, Tony Stark cracks jokes all the time. Peter Parker makes jokes while he's fighting bad guys, and that humor seems organic to the character. None of these jokes seem like they're coming from people who are actually funny. Um, yeah. And again, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, and let me finish the thought before you jump in, because it, this is what I'm about to mention is better than what I think Batman v Superman is. But it reminds me of parts of uh, Thor The Dark World, where 
it, you it, it wasn't humor it was just jokiness and right. like they were giving loki jokes that weren't really mm-hmm. loki jokes but tom hiddleston can pull off yep. and because we were invested in those characters it can be entertaining anything with thor and loki we all love obviously right. you, you know we've probably referenced a couple of those jokes over the course of our bazillion podcast but there were too many jokes in thor the dark world you could tell that they were shoving them in to make up for a lackluster story terrible villain yep. and just incomprehensible yep. narrative mm-hmm. no, i agree with all that um which does not bode well at all for Justice League. But no. even with these jokes, I'm still watching this trailer, and I, I I can't find where the heart of this movie is supposed to be. Incredibly soulless. It still looks made by focus groups. It still has the the same stupid action style that Joss that I'm sorry, not Joss Wing, that Zack Snyder insists on this standing around then slow motions, mostly CGI fight, you know, sliding and punching and then coming up. It's it's the same exact thing as BVS. And if you like what the DCEU is doing, and that is certainly your right, um, I can't really convince you not to like it except to say it's okay to want more out of your movies than that. Yeah. Um, you're probably going to like Justice League, and you're probably going to have been enthused by the trailer. But... I am completely checked out of the DCU at the EU at this point. And I think you are actually slightly less checked out only in that you still have hope and enthusiasm for Wonder Woman. And I, I can't even muster that anymore. Yeah. Um, but if you go watch one of the Wonder Woman trailers, the, uh, I have. Uh, uh, they uh, don't do anything for me. I'm no, sorry. No, no, and I I'm love- say- yeah. What go I'm ahead. saying is immediately after watching the bvs trailer a couple times i went back and watched a couple of the wonder woman trailers and it looks a thousand times better even just the action and i said a long time ago when they first released the wonder woman trailer that i thought that based on just the trailer it seemed that patty jenkins is going to pull off what Zack snyder from an action standpoint continues to try and pull off and just look way cooler now to be fair I, you know, I, I really liked Wonder Woman and BVS way more than you. I was super impressed by her presence and what they did with her action. It seems like they're taking it to a new level. I think the fact that she's got a sword and shield and you can do a Thor-type mechanic in terms of fighting is going right. to help a lot. But there is something vibrant to me about um, – or, or just – there's some life to the Wonder Woman trailers. And yes, Chris Pine is funny, naturally funny, and they mm-hmm. seem to have a very good rapport. And I think the fact of her being an outsider, you know, almost an alien like Supergirl or whatever, will play to the fact that she's kind of a new actress and sort of acclimating to, you know, to acting um, as as a leading lady, I, I, you know. And, and the support cast for Wonder Woman is great. The, the time period stuff's awesome, especially when you add, you know, ancient Greek uh, mythology and, and, and right. sword fighting and stuff. I just think Wonder Woman at least is going to be entertaining and watchable, even if it's not a great movie. I, I don't think that that's going to be the case for Batman v Superman, but the, or, or if it Justice is this, certainly didn't give me the impression that that was going to be the case aquaman seems worthless ezra miller annoying i I don't know what to take away from this yeah i mean none of the new characters interest me i mean cyborg gets one line and he he has no roles by the way he's a theater actor he's never been in a movie other than bvs that doesn't really bother me as much but it's just his character doesn't i mean we it's just a trailer but he looks lame and he just says one line ezra miller 
is not Barry Allen. I mean, that, that's just that is not who Barry Allen is at all. That's not really who Aquaman is either, and I've said before, he looks like the 90s Aquaman. The 90s were a bad time for comics, and that was the time when Aquaman became the joke of the DC universe. Like, Aquaman has never been the most popular character, but he was not the butt of a joke until what Bob Shipman described as biker mermaid Aquaman showed up on the scene with the beard and the jacked body. Uh, that was when the character became ridiculous and it wasn't until they went back to the slim blonde haired one in the new 52 that the character started to get at least a little bit better. I wonder Woman. I will give it credit for at least being bright. You know, the scenes on the beach, I don't think Zack Snyder pays people to light his movies. I think he just doesn't believe in lighting (laughs) because everything is black and takes place in an alley. And his actors Um, might must hate him for all the night shoots. Probably, unless it's all CGI post-production crap, which, I mean, that is also certainly possible. Uh, But at least there is some bright, you know, there's beach scenes and stuff like that, and that certainly looks more interesting. I mean, look, you're you're a DC guy, so you look at Aquaman and say, this is a dumb character, they shouldn't have done anything with him. I look no, at Aquaman. he should be in a Justice League movie. Right. I just don't think this was the right so, Aquaman to, to design. Okay. But, what I, but what I'm saying, <clears throat> excuse me, what I'm saying is, I see Jason Momoa and Aquaman. I know almost nothing about Aquaman, and I see that as an opportunity, an opportunity that clearly seems to be wasted, at least in this BVS movie. Right. You know, there uh, there's some very powerful undersea characters in Marvel. Namor being the most significant. Sure. And he is bizarre, and he looks like an elf from the sea, but yep. he's a really important character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe with a very distinct personality. And if you just made underwater Cal Drogo with magical water powers with Jason Momoa, that could be right. awesome. Like, you know, and you're a DC guy, obviously, and I am not, uh, but I, I, I look at underdeveloped characters as opportunities. Like, right. I mean, Wolverine is the perfect example. It's so easy to retcon in our own memories now, Wolverine. But if you read Wolverine from the 80s and 90s, he's nowhere near as dimensional as Hugh Jackman. So you give it to a great actor, make him care about the role so much that he plays it for 17 years, and for the most part, give him good writing, at least in the better of the movies, and all of a sudden you've got a three-plus dimensional character from a character that at best is like two dimensions and change at least in um the original wolverine and in fact wolverine in the the comics gets way more dimensional post the first x-men movie Mm-hmm. It's like they were drawing from the subtleties of Hugh Jackman's performance and the subtext, uh, uh, you know. And now Aquaman obviously is nowhere near as beloved or storied in the comics as Wolverine is. Um, no, not not even close. But um, but do do you agree with me that it, in some ways it would help the DCEU the same way that Marvel really screwed up the Inhumans thing, uh, you know, that could have been a great opportunity. And maybe when they reboot it in the movie or whatever, that could be a great opportunity to take lesser-known characters and have more creative freedom. The way Supergirl has basically unlimited creative freedom, being not a huge presence in the comics compared to you know Superman, Batman, etc. 
Well, okay, hang on. Supergirl is a 70-year-old character. Fine, 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 not- fine, fine. I'm just talking about in the public's imagination. Like, oh, yeah. you, ask, mean, sure. you ask Joe Schmo Public, who likes big-budget comic book movies, to name, you know, if they can name 10 DC characters that they like su- before the Supergirl show started. I'm pretty no, sure Cara Danvers would not been- come up. Yeah. No, not at all. Um, I mean, the idea of underwater Cal Drogo with magic, it could work. But my problem is this strikes – his casting struck me as nerds like this actor. Let's give let's get him into this movie and then they'll go see it because of it just because they'll want to see shirtless Cal, Dro- to Cal Drogo. Fair, to be fair, he was already a fan favorite among nerds from Stargate Atlantis where he was a very memorable character in an otherwise forgettable show. Sure. His show on his show Frontier on Netflix, while has somewhat mixed reviews, has at least four stars, and I know people who think the show is pretty cool. So he I, may be a B plus B B plus actor, but we've seen B B plus actors be really fucking good when given the right writing and the right roles. I am not criticizing him for taking the role, and I'm not suggesting that he is unworthy of having people like him. I loved his performance as Cal Drogo. I think. He is one of the standouts of season one, and it was a bummer to see him go, even though in the comics, that's basically what happened. So I knew yeah. he was not yeah. not in the comics. In the books, he was not long for uh, yeah. Westeros. My problem is that he was offered the role not because anybody had a really well-conceived Aquaman character right. that they thought he could play. They just wanted to get Jason Momoa into their movie because they thought that would boost up the box office. Sure. Another example of what I said of a movie made – by focus groups instead of script writers and storytellers. Okay. And All right, he, well, just, he doesn't yeah. work as Aquaman for yeah, me. Yeah. Um, we're, we're not very excited for this movie, so let's move no, on. I'm, we can address it as it gets closer. By the way, <laughs> it's, uh, as of a day or two before this recording was the one-year anniversary of our BVS uh, yeah. epic podcast, um, which you know we should revisit. Are you at all tempted to do a BVS commentary? I have actually been tempted to try to come up with a bet with you for something and that the loser has to buy or rent the digital copies for each of us so that we can do it. (laughs) I have honestly thought about doing this quite a bit, even though the thought of watching that stupid movie again fills me with unbelievable dread. Here's here's what here, here would be my argument for doing it other than we'd probably get a lot of hits on it. There is world building towards Justice League and Wonder Woman in it. And I was so oppressed and just not into the film that I forgot the like message from the Flash from the future. Right. And how they're trying to make Lois Lane some sort of like Jesus critical character character or something. Um, Messiah or something. I I mean, no, I think it's more that without her, Superman goes crazy. They're hinting at the plot of the injustice video games. Uh, Oh, okay. Which is also related to that dream Batman has where Superman punches him through the chest. That's also a reference to injustice. Okay. But keep going. Uh, But yeah, so yeah, it might be worth it. Lot. Yeah. Um, so okay. So all right. Well, we can talk about that off mic. Can I just uh, I make a quick um, a quick connection with uh, with Cal Drogo, and then uh, then let's launch into our main discussion in Legion. So last night I finally watched Oasis, uh, which okay. is you know once or twice a year now Amazon does these pilots where they release three, four, five pilots of shows that they want to do to engage yep. interest, which is a very non Netflixy way of doing things. 
Um, they have a lot of money over at Amazon, in case you didn't notice. You know, they they funded Manchester by the Sea, uh, f- among other award-winning movies that you wouldn't necessarily think were Amazon. Um, the central- they basically are trying to cor- get five percent of all business on the internet. They uh, they they really have created a business model that's extremely profitable. Yep. So uh, it stars um, my guy Richard Madden, who is also great in um, the Medici. Masters of Florence on Netflix, which once uh, once once these spring shows died down, uh, Maddie G's gonna give a try, and we'll talk to you guys about Medici, which I really like. Um, and in fact, I, I you know most people think that. Uh, or would say that you know Game of Thrones reached a new level of of coolness with the Red Wedding episode in season three, but I, it's I, certainly I, considered one of the best episodes. Yeah, I, that's when I left the series actually because Caitlin Stark and Rob Stark were two of my f- only f- favorite characters who were remaining. Um, and I, I got why they did what they did, but I just, I, I, I need to be able to invest in main characters and mm-hmm. n- I know that that's part of the appeal is that they could just kill any characters that you like at any moment. And I know in the walking dead, for example, they do that as well. Right. Um, so yeah. I, it's, it, that's just not really my thing, but I always liked Richard Madden. Um, I think he's even going to be better in Oasis if they pick this up because he's kind of brooding and unhappy all the time in Medici because he doesn't want to be the head of the family, but he's forced to by his dad, Dustin Hoffman. And he's great at brooding, but in Oasis, he's playing a Scottish chaplain in the future. And uh, he's asked by an old friend to travel to a remote planet where all sorts of weird shit's going on. Um, if you've seen Solaris or Moon and sort of the you know the, the the hallucinatory sci-fi genre of which i'm a huge fan even 2001 a space odyssey mm-hmm. um it definitely has a blade runner influence it's got a little bit uh, musically and uh, visually an interstellar thing it's got 2001 space odyssey um they, they openly say that all the solaris films the russian films and the more recent steven soderbergh film um and th- th- this this world is having an environmental collapse which is related to like weird shit going on in people's brains and they're committing suicides in gruesome ways and it's only an hour long they do an unbelievable amount of world building there's a spectacular young uh a uh, female uh, Asian uh, actress whose name I don't have in front of me right now, who's awesome. Anil Kapoor is in it. He was the guy from Slumdog Millionaire um, and uh, the Mission Impossible movie. He's that he's that good looking but kind of sleazy bad guy uh, character uh, Indian character actor that you would know. Um, he was the host in Slumdog Millionaire. If you guys have seen that, oh movie. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he plays the head of the colony, who it seems as or the new head, who it seems has maybe killed. Uh, Richard Madden's buddy, and it ends with Richard Madden going off into the desert against orders. Um, he's a priest, but he didn't used to be. He had a wife um, who made him religious and made him a believer, and then his wife died, and so he embraced the cloth and becomes a priest, and he's off investigating, and at the end, he confronts some of the people that he had been hallucinating about and it ends right there it looks amazing i don't know where they got a budget for a pilot they must think this is going to be a tv show i mean there's this hysterical scene where he's up on a hill there's like oil derricks around he's up on the hill with this asian actress who's so so good and they're having a conversation with everyone going crazy all of a sudden they hear a creaking noise and in the distance probably a few thousand feet away you see a giant oil derrick just collapse on itself into the ground and de- be destroyed and then they just continue talking to one another 
<laughs> they, just, they don't even say anything. Uh, so it's kind of bizarre, dark sense of humor. Highly recommended, people. Check out Oasis and go to Amazon's website. You can vote on it and just give it a thumbs up. Um, it's a UK production um, and uh, has, has a great cast and, and premise. This is exactly the kind of dark sci-fi I would love to see on TV. So um, that is our final plug. Um, um, and uh, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Matt. It's only about 59 minutes, 59 minutes on Amazon, but do you not have Amazon Prime? No, I don't. Okay, I, I will. I will help make that available to you if you are interested in watching it. Um, be. Yes, um, or, or you could just wait it out and see if it becomes a series. Uh, I generally don't watch pilots. I generally don't even watch first seasons, as you know. But this yep. was just such a great combination of stuff I liked, and I thought it was awesome. Um, and uh, when they were doing interstellar travel, it had some of that um, expanse stuff where. They had to put chemicals in their body, and they were breathing in certain stuff. You know, the science of space travel um, is very cool. It's sort of it is sort of hard sci-fi, um, and I think because of the popularity of the Expanse, which we'll get to later, it, it might help with with a show like this, especially to Amazon subscribers. Um, so, without further ado, and speaking of hallucinations, this was a better transition than I thought. I, uh, I, I really tried to watch the season finale, man. And even a few weeks ago when I kind of gave up on Legion, I've been mm-hmm. watching just the first few minutes of each episode to just kind of yep. get a sense. And sometimes I'll watch the last few minutes. Um, I really sat down and, and put everything away and tried to watch the first, the first part, but I just, I just couldn't get into the vibe of it. And, and I, since obviously I had even less of an idea, um, about what was going on because I haven't watched recent episodes. So, um, can we start backwards on this one without, without not you not doing a summary first and go, sure. going straight to your overall general assessment of the season and then you can go into specifics of the episode or however you want to deal with it? Yeah, sure. Legion concludes as I suspected it would with much more focused on addressing David's internal conflict with the devil with the yellow eyes than anything involving the mutants and the government. It ends in a way that seems like it could have, if the show didn't get renewed, it could have ended. You know, the final scene very much feels like it could be a not satisfactory ending, but kind of an open cliffhanger. But then there is a post-credits sequence, which is probably the most comic booky thing the show has done, that only works if they knew they were getting renewed. So my hunch is... They knew internally they would be getting a second season long before it was ever announced uh, to the public. If if you could uh, summarize in one or two sentences what this series is to someone who hasn't watched it, is interested, so a non-spoilery sentence of you having watched it, uh, of kind of a pitch to someone about why they should watch it, knowing what you know. If you like very strange very artistic, weird television, and you can buy the idea that this time around the mutants of the X-Men are a stand-in for the mentally ill instead of the other marginalized groups they have represented in the past, such as black people or Jews or gay people, uh, you will dig this concept where being a mutant is an analogy for being mentally ill and learning how to control your mutant powers is like therapy, like psychotherapy. I, I did like in the first part of the, the episode that I watched um, that he still thinks at some level that he's schizophrenic and racial 
still talking him down from it after everything right. that's happened, right? It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love that he had the thing on his head, which was very similar to what Brian Cox uh, in X2 puts on Patrick Stewart's head to control yep. the telepathy. Mm-hmm. And yet he still uses his telekinesis to make a stack of of soldiers, which was really funny. Now, when, when the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it, you could tell it's CGI at first when he's throwing them, but then they were clearly hanging the soldiers from something against the green screen, real soldiers, and it was so funny. Mm-hmm. I thought it was hilarious. Do you think it's a coincidence that the... the um, I mean the suits. I know it's all black, but the the the, the design of the the stormtrooper suits or whatever do look very similar to Brian Cox's um, uh, stormtroopers who who stormed the X Mansion in X Two. I don't know if that's a, a conscious nod or not. I, I thought it was really cool. Um, but there's my my impressions again, having watched the first half of the series and little bits and pieces of the second half of the of the season. It's it's amazing for such a dark show, but I love that it doesn't take itself too seriously and clearly has a distinct and internal sense of humor. Uh, yeah. Oh, it has a. It's definitely funny. Yeah. I mean, it has a, a very clear sense of humor. I don't know if that was a conscious nod towards X two. They just look like government soldiers uh, soldiers yeah. to me. Sure. Um, but about the sense of humor, I mean, it's it's palpable even if you've gone a few episodes without watching like me. I, I was smiling in the beginning, no doubt. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's supposed to be funny, but it is also supposed to be scary. You know, this idea that throughout the series, when David has manifested his powers, he's manifested quite a few of them, you know, and... Melanie Bird describes him in this one as a world-breaking mutant or a world-killer mutant. And even though the devil with the yellow eyes enhances his powers, on his own, it's clear he is incredibly powerful. He is telekinetic. He is telepathic. He can teleport himself. He can teleport other objects or people. He can astral project. He has elements of time-stopping power or maybe super speed because he can actually catch bullets um if i could just jump in real quick um so i just want to give a shout out uh matt's not a huge fan but if you guys are into really hilarious uh top 10 lists from video games and and uh film and television um with with funny uh, british voice actors and nerds uh check out what culture um on youtube and uh, but their top 10 lists are very informative for me at least um and they did a top 10 list of the most powerful x-men in the comics Mm-hmm. Now, as opposed to going to Screen Rant, where you have to keep clicking through the fucking pages, it's not even yeah, that well written. Yeah, which is well frustrating written. as hell. And it's not even that well written to begin with. They I like sa- Screen Rant. I like it more than What Culture, but keep going. Well, it's completely different. But point is, um, they say something that, that confirms w- what I had read before the show, which is Legion is technically potentially more powerful than either professor x or gene gray yep um but because of his crazy they had him mm-hmm. listed below them right because in most incarnations because of the lack of control not to be fair they and others have the scarlet witch 
um, the more recent Scarlet Witch in, in the comic books above all three of them because, like Doctor Strange, she can do interdimensional things and warp the very fabric of time and space. Yeah, uh, exactly. Which puts her on another level. Although they hint that Legion maybe could have that power, again, with development and control. Uh, where, where's his power set at at the moment, which you, which you just referenced uh, in the TV show? And where do you kind of see it going? And by the way, the way that Dan Stevens is playing it, and again, I didn't see the whole episode he seems to be more in control than i would have imagined he'd be at this point well i think they wanted to portray this training slash psychotherapy as working and that as he figures himself out he becomes more and more in control of his abilities you know in the comics he has the same problem that ultra boy has which is he can only basically use one of his powers at a time because each power is tied into a different personality that he's absorbed. Um, that's like his only – as I understand it, his comics character has only one native power, which is the ability to absorb the personalities and powers of other mutants. But because there's no limit to how many he can have, he has access to a really like dozens of mutants. The problem is having dozens of mutants' brains in him makes him nuts. Um, but yeah, so it's not clear how much he's aware of what he can do. You know, he seems to be able to control some of his telekinesis at this point. He can fly, you know, there's a scene where he's kind of intentionally floating over a pile of logs, just sort of sitting in a meditative pose. It's meant to, uh, to, um, sort of intimidate, uh, yeah. One of the government agents they're trying to work with to create peace, the uh, okay. the interviewer guy from uh-huh. um, the first episode. Uh, so it's unclear how much he's aware that he can do, but he has shown a very wide variety of abilities already. Yep. And I think he's going to gain more and more. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting, the idea that his – the main character is a mutant who doesn't have a clearly defined power set as opposed yeah. to, you know, Tonomy has memory powers. Uh-huh. Uh, Sid can change bodies. The carries are two people in one body. Is that Sid's and only power? As far as I can tell. So it's like it's basically an empathic power, like a radically empathic. Uh, yeah, or something, power. you know. Um, what, what, are, what are the um, I'm going to ask you about the villains real quick. <clears throat> I have a couple of villains okay. questions. Um, do you think that they are risking an OP problem? And for people out there who don't know who are cool and don't know what OP means, it means overpowered. Like, oh, and uh, it's a term powered. used in comic books, but often in video games. Yeah, um, usually having to do with the character you play because it's actually not fun, and that's why like using cheat codes and stuff sucks. You know, it's fun for five seconds to have unlimited ammo and invincible, but it's not really a cool gaming experience. And and Mm -hmm. balancing OP on both the good and bad guy side in in video games and storytelling in general is very important. Just to cycle back to um, to Feist, the magic system, very few people can use magic. There are a handful of sorcerers that are extremely powerful, but... The powerful spells take a lot of energy out of them. They often need uh, objects, as you and I have talked about, you know, uh, to focus that power. 
Um, like in Tolkien, for example, or maybe that wasn't me and you, it could have been Tuck in the Tolkien podcast, but it, you, using objects and having a limited number of objects and having to focus the power. Is there a potential, given just Legion's abilities in the comics, seemingly, um, you know, an endless level, uh, uh quality and quantity uh, of powers that, that there could be an OP problem or is a combination of A, the crazy and B, the villains enough to kind of keep that in check, uh, in future seasons. I, is there a chance of him becoming incredibly powerful to the point of him being unmatched physically? Yes. It's a, it's a possibility. I think Noah, wise, like in terms of storytelling wise, I don't think so because okay. I think Noah Hawley has never wanted uh, and will never want to make this about plot. I mean, I've said before, this show is not about plot. It's about mood and metaphor and this idea, what the watch called subtext as the text of the show. Yeah. So no matter how strong he gets, yeah. It's always going to be a question of what does he be, you know, what is he as a person with his powers as they are. No, so if he that. becomes, yeah. but if you, you know, if, so if I'm sorry, but just really quickly to just flush and then you go. Uh, if he becomes overpowered, then scenarios where they don't win become unrealistic, and that's why you and I joke that Professor X has to be taken out in every single X Men movie because he's so powerful. And with Logan, they continue the trend of finding right. ways to take him out. But X two. And one of the reasons X2 is the best, I think, is that it's not just that they take him out, it's that the way they take him out explains the limitations of the power. They use the the taking out not just as a way of taking him out, but as creating an amazing story having to do with Brian Cox's telepathic son, Jason. Um, you know, and using Cerebro against humanity, you know, using his, his best, again, using an object to enhance his power, as I was saying, you know, so as powerful as Professor X is, um, you know, he's only, I, I think he, his range is like 250 miles without Cerebro or something like that, which is still ridiculous. You know, he can cause an entire museum to freeze up. I, right. I think I, my, my personal opinion is this is a challenge that a guy like Holly, again, not knowing his past in terms of his interest in comic books and stuff, you know, finding ways to depower, even temporarily overpower characters actually can work for you if you do it right. And, and what, based on what you're saying and what I've heard and where they're going, it seems like that that'll be sort of a fun ongoing challenge for them. Sorry. I, uh, one, I don't think Noah Hawley is a comic book fan. I don't think, you know, he, uh, on the watch, Andy Greenwald, who worked on Legion said he went to Noah and said, you know, I've read tons of X comics as a kid and Holly's like, that's great. I don't care. Um, so mm. I don't, I don't think any conflict that doesn't make moving, me want to watch the show anymore. <laughs> no, it makes me want to watch it more because, but if that if, was the case with DC, you'd be infuriated. No, I wouldn't. If the show was done well, I'd love it. So do they, they not can, have any comic book people show running or writing? I mean, that's they certainly aren't taking their plots from uh, comic book from comic stories. They never explain who Amal Farouk, the Shadow King, is. They don't give him an origin story. So they're not doing it the way which you should like because you hate origin stories. I. I think they're never going to make a show in such a way that it matters how powerful this he is or he isn't. Was they're an not, origin story. You got to be kidding me. Well, yeah, it is and it isn't. Um, it, it's about him gaining sanity. So I guess I don't think they're going to put him in a lot of fights. You know, the kinds of 
I don't think they're going to make the conflicts he faces ones that he can solve with his mutant powers as powerful as they are. I don't think they need to depower him because I think the challenges they're going to put in front of him are going to are not going to be ones he can solve with his abilities, or at least it won't be enough, no matter how powerful yeah. he is, to solve them. Yeah, I mean, so what's I, what's Professor X's greatest re- power from a narrative standpoint is his ability to talk to people and convince people to do stuff without using his mind. You know, at the end of X right. two, when they're talking with the president, he could just mind control the president, but he yeah, doesn't. He, just he reasons with it. him. He tries to reason with him, and he says he never wants to go in Magneto's head. You know, I mean, in first class, if he had spent- except in the first X movie, he goes inside Magneto's head. Yes, to save, pe- yeah, to save people. But if you recall, and, in first and in class, Days of Future Past, he goes yeah. inside Magneto's head briefly. But if you if you recall in first class, one of your favorite X Men movies, maybe your favorite X Men movie. The thing that doesn't make sense is if he spent two seconds in Magneto's head at any point after they met, he would know that Magneto was going to try and kill Sebastian Shaw no matter what. I think he does know that. I think he's he screams at the end. He's he uh, yeah. He's no. trying to convince him not to do that. And some of that is he is in Shaw's head, and so he is feeling Shaw's pain as this quarter is being telepathically moved through his brain and shredding it so he's screaming because he's lost his friend and because he is physically going through the trauma of the brain he's in being shredded apart by a quarter um and so and what's interesting is if you consider telepathy to be a form of prophecy because right, yeah. if, if you can read everyone's minds then theoretically yeah. you can read the future now at the end of first class there's this very touching moment where he tells Mystique to go with Magneto and that's what she wanted. Right. And, and she says something like, you said you would never go into my head without my permission. And he said something like, I made a lot of promises, meaning he had gone in her head, knew her intentions, but had such faith in her and humanity that he refused to believe it, which is such a cool character trait. This is all a way of saying, I, I think they have a lot of cool territory to go through. And if they do what you say, where he tries to solve problems not with his mutant powers, that would be awesome. That's what I think is going to be the case for the show moving forward. I think the plot stuff is always going to come second to him developing as a character, as a person. uh, And his abilities are going to, if anything, be a source of comic relief most of the time. Because a lot of the conversations and scenes with him using his powers are funny. The making the the Christmas tree of soldiers, which is what it kind of looked like to me with all their arms sticking out. That's so true is funny when he astral projects him and Sid to his sister's interrogation. And then they wind up in the lake outside Summerland. And she goes, you know, if you can control that, you'd be a badass. It's funny when they're putting him through the scanner that still reminds me of Cerebro just in its look, the, you know, the cat scan machine Yeah, and Carrie, the dude, Carrie says you have an amazing amygdala or something like that. And he goes, thank you. It's funny. His powers are the humor in the show in a lot of cases, not the drivers of the plot. Yep. Um, and I think Noah Hawley is a good enough showrunner to understand that's what makes his show unique and that's where he wants to go. And in interviews I've listened to with him, that is certainly what he has seemed to, to hint at is yeah. that the power stuff 
isn't what interests him about this character. It's the psychological stuff. It's the developmental yeah. stuff. Uh-huh. Um, it's the subtextual stuff. Okay, can I ask you a quick couple questions? We'll move on to the next topic. Yeah. Um, what was what did Aubrey Plaza end up being? Other than a fucking badass actor, so I can't wait to see more from. So she turned out to be this evil mutant called the Shadow King. Okay, Amal Farouk. He's this. Yeah. Okay. Basically, a long time ago, Xavier and him fought. Xavier killed him in real life, but his mind flew off into the astral plane, and then it possessed David, uh, and then it's manifested as a number of things over the years, including Aubrey Plaza, his dog King as a kid, uh, this the angriest boy with the weird fate with the balloon head. Um, I'm still not sure why he appears as that. Yeah. Um, except maybe just as another way to sort of terrify David. And by the way, Shadow uh, King is very associated with Legion in the comics, and they have confirmed. I mean, I think you're saying that. But yes, they have. They've confirmed that. Sam. Um, and uh, by the way, if you guys are interested in more in the Shadow King, uh, the Nerdist um, website has a really cool article ab- about how they did the prosthetics and so forth of the Shadow King. It's called mm-hmm. How Legion's uh, Showrunner Designed His Gruesome Version of the Shadow King. Yep. And the Amal Farouk's body in the comics is a big fat guy. So the way he's got sort of that almost like frog like bulge beneath in his neck and the really lanky arms. Uh, You know, this one, Amal Farouk looks more like how Kingpin looks in the comics, just a giant fat guy, um, but strong looking. Um, So. I think that's what Aubrey Plaza's character at the end of the show is no longer connected to David, but she's still around. I, I we can spoil the ending if you want, but I would just as soon not. Okay. Um, well, then it, let's what what as instead of spoiling the ending, why don't we right. redirect it for my last major question? Okay. Um, not that I'm forcing a hard stop no, on no, that's fine. Um which is predictions for season two, overall them- <laughs> thematic and character predictions for season two. Now, you claim that you felt that this episode was felt like an episode that knew it had a new season, but that can't have been the case, right? Well, I think TV shows and showrunners know whether or not they're getting renewed much, much earlier in the process than we think. It's even possible they know before the first episode airs or they know during the writing process that they've got to you know, a, a quiet, like unofficial commitment for a second season. Mm -hmm. So there is these, there are these plot elements that they're clearly going to have to address. The shadow King is looking for something and she thought David had it. We don't know what it is, but it turns out seemingly he doesn't. So she leaves with another mutant to try to find it in, I think they just go South. So I think Mm -hmm. maybe Mexico or something. So, Mm -hmm. They're going to have to deal with that. Um, In the last episode, as they're trying to strip the devil from David's mind, he has this moment where he confronts Aubrey Plaza, who looks really creepy in the scene. She she's got she's starting to like ooze black stuff out of her face. Her hair looks horrible. She's really pale. She can't she can twitch, but not do much else her mouth is stuck in this open grimace. It's a really creepy looking image. Um, I think uh, almost looks like Edward Scissorhands. 
Hmm. Um, but more horrifying and less lovable. Um, but that's kind of pale white hair is strewn everywhere. Uh, look, and he says, you've been part of my life forever. I don't know how I define myself without you. And so that I think maybe is going to be the theme for next season, which is without the devil in him, what does David become? You know, Mm -hmm. what is David like sane or as close to sanity? been how does he deal with it are the other voices that he hears because he hears a lot of voices does that stuff start coming back and what does he do if his symptoms return without being able to pin it on this other parasitic entity in his own mind Mm -hmm. you know these are the thematic questions that i think are going to be at the core of season two um the reason i said it seems like it only were the final episode only works if they knew they were coming back is because the final like scene the post credit scene is an extremely weird what the fuck out of nowhere moment that only that strikes me as something that you don't do unless you know that you're coming back to be able to tell how that story wraps up because it's you know it's like uh sharon shooting adama in the chest it's a really standard season ending cliffhanger that you have to answer and you know, in the first episode of the next season. And my hunch is they wouldn't end the show that way if they didn't know that they were going to get a chance to tell that story, to finish that story. Mm-hmm. So it was recently announced that Fox is doing another X-Men TV series, but this one will be part of the X-Men E. Yes. It's going to be called Gifted. Um, for better or worse, Brian Singer will direct the pilot, which I think is smart. He's not a producer or a writer. Um, just for the aesthetic, I, I believe that that's smart. Um, and I know you're not a huge fan of his, um, no. but I think Singer is self-aware enough to know that Apocalypse was not what he wanted. Um, now, this this will tie in nicely because they're going to be talking about is this basically the new or young X-Men in the comics. Right. Now, interestingly, um, the, uh, the, the title and possibly some thematic things are coming from Joss Whedon's awesome, astonishing X-Men comic series from about 10 years ago. Um, and, uh, they're going to have some mutants that we know a little bit from like days of future past, like Blink, um, Polaris, who hasn't been in any X-Men properties, um, who's the daughter of Magneto. So that'll be really cool. Um, I think it's going to be on Fox, not FX. Um, and uh, this happening. And the Sentinels are going to be involved. The X-Mansion is going to be involved. And there's almost no way it's going to be as good or critically acclaimed as Legion, because Legion is probably going to win a lot of awards um, based on the reception uh, of both. Or Sorry, not, not win. Nominated for awards. Dan Stevens will for sure. sure that. You want to bet? I guarantee Dan Stevens will be nominated for a Golden Globe and or Emmy right now. A Legion comic book bet on the line. We'll see. One Uh, comic. Just bet me. A single comic. Or we could do this is the bet for who buys the BVS uh, rental. Yeah, but we're not going to find this out for a year. Uh, That's a good point. All right. Okay, we're betting that we'll bet, we're betting something, some some Legion something. Maybe can we get a Dan Stevens Legion action figure? That would be awesome. 
<laughs> who by the way it was funny to see him again for the first time beauty and the beast he's really a chameleon i mean guys like tom hardy for example can look so many different ways um there are certain actors that i mean forrest whitaker somehow looks different was distinct as he looks you can get him to look a lot of different ways you know some people like denzel they always look like denzel um dan stevens just has an amazing um um yeah i don't know he is a handsome guy i, I wonder if, if women think he's cute um and uh does he always wear the orange jumpsuit for the whole series it's kind of cool he no actually in this one he actually i think it starts wearing a peacoat like it's almost matrixy um yeah. but he wears a black t-shirt and yeah you know he's not always wearing the orange jumpsuit although i like the visual aesthetic of clockworks with the people in the orange and black suits i I actually thought that worked um we're gonna move on yes listeners however i want matt to spoil the ending and give theories okay so right before the credits it shows aubrey plaza who has possessed oliver's mind um basically there's a big fight at the end as the devil leaves david's body goes briefly into sid's body who then uses her powers to transfer herself into female Carrie's body. Carrie beats everybody up. David wakes up from the, the extraction process. They fight. The devil gets blasted out of Carrie, goes into Oliver. He gets in a car, and they drive south. And the song, something-something revolution, I don't know what it's called, plays. Then it goes to credits. All of that feels like an open-ended cliffhanger that they could never answer if the show wasn't coming back. But then... It shows, uh, after the credits, it shows David and Sid on a balcony talking, and then this little silver sphere floats in front of David, scans him with a blue light, he goes, what the f***? And then he disappears and gets teleported inside the sphere, and then the sphere flies away with him, like, screaming and punching and demanding to be let out, and that's how it ends. This random ass sphere shows up and then it just flies away. Uh, and I have no idea what the hell that was. Um, Directive 3 mentioned something about releasing the Equinox. Equinox is a character from Marvel Comics, but it's a dude who is half fire, half ice. I don't. I, I have no theories on what this is. It would seem to be the Directive has found a way to teleport him and trap him. So I guess maybe it's going to open up with him in Directive 3 custody. Uh, But it could be something else entirely. It could be the Skrulls or the Shi'ar. It could be an alien thing. You know, this is a a level of technology that I – the show has never hinted before is on – is available. So that means it really could be coming from anything. Um, And so I guess the show is going to open with some kind of rescue sequence. I'm guessing that's how Season 2 is going to start. Interesting, interesting. So I'm looking, I'm looking online here. Uh, um, a possible interpretations of it. No one has any fucking idea, right? Uh, what's going on? It seems like maybe they're capturing him to study him, right? It seems yeah. like a possibility. But if they have remote-controlled spherical drones that can teleport people inside, I'm not entirely sure why they need a large number of soldiers to go in and shoot people. It seems to me they have a pretty easy way of controlling people without needing to put human lives at risk. Okay. Uh, so, so Aubrey Plaza is still alive. Yes. Well, uh, she was never alive, but, but she still exists. 
And how does Oliver Bird fit into all this? He is possessed by her and they the two of we never right, quite figure out what his powers are um there's one episode where he tries to save them from sort of when they break out of the shadow king's version of uh clockworks they're trying to solve the problem of okay when they break free time is going to restart and they're in this room where there's a bunch of bullets about to kill them yep. and so he starts strumming the song bolero and like there's a special effect of music notes flying in the air and it seems like his ability can rewrite reality somehow but it's not clear and we never see it come into effect because Aubrey Plaza attacks him and stops him and that forces David to use his powers to save them all hmm. so we don't quite know what Oliver can and can't do but the two of them are basically of one mind they're driving south they're trying to find it whatever it is uh-huh. uh clearly they're all going to be coming back next year yeah. uh, and we'll find out what what the hell they're looking for so a couple nuggets mm-hmm. aubrey plaza and it seems like jermaine clement are both coming back which is great news for everybody yep and by the way if they can just focus the storytelling a tiny bit for season two i will totally get on board i i have not given up on this show Okay. I just couldn't keep up with it at the pace that they were releasing it with everything else that we're doing, man. Because, you know, I'm, I'm, let's put it this way. I need to focus on getting an, a bunch of shows under my belt each week so that we can talk about it. Right. And not get hung up by the ones like Taboo or Legion, which might need more time to, to, to um, marinate with me. Ed. So I'm not giving up on this show because I love both Clement and, of course, Aubrey Plaza, who, by the way, definitely has a Helen and Bonham Carter thing going on, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, here's one theory that I got um, on Vanity Fair. So a prime suspect for the orb could be, from the comics, could be the mutant Mojo. Um, in fact, fans of the comics initially thought that the yellow-eyed figure was Mojo. Oh, now, really? Mojo is an eight. Well, maybe we'll research this more going forward. Um, Mojo is an 80s era X Men villain who presided over a pocket dimension called the Mojoverse. There he ruled over an enslaved population addicted to Hunger Games esque gladiatorial TV shows. He is, there was an X cartoon episode about this guy. Yeah, he's fond of kidnapping X Men, and okay. he was created as, I think, sort of like. Um, what's that movie called? Battle Drone? Battle. Uh, uh, something like that. Yeah. yeah, it was created as a sharp critique of the TV industry and network executives, uh, w- which seems like precisely the kind of commentary Noah Hawley might be interested in pursuing. Huh. And since Hawley has said definitively that we should expect more X Men characters, if not stories, Mojo is a, if not likely, candidate than a, a, a tempting one. Interesting. So um, it's certainly possible. It would be a weird ass place for the show to go. Yeah. Um, but I am, if nothing, if uh, not a fan of weird ass ideas. So yep. if season two takes place in a parallel dimension, where the main bad guy is a TV executive, a parody of a TV executive, yeah. um, I would sure go for it. I, yeah. I'm, I trust Noah Hawley a lot, and so I am willing to to ride with him on his weirdest sure. ideas. Uh, sure. For a while yet, uh, I'm looking at a Twitter photo of um, of Patrick Stewart hanging out with Dan Stevens somewhere about a week mm. ago. Um, 
a couple. We wh- never get Charles yeah. Xavier's name or see him this season. We do get one shot of the X wheelchair. My hunch is next season they are at least going to acknowledge his name. I we're, I still think we're multiple seasons, probably more than the show will stay on the air from actually seeing a Charles Xavier show up. Uh-huh. I doubt we're going to get any major X Men showing up next season. Yep. But I think maybe they will at least say his name yep. um, or maybe hint. You know, when Summerland gets overrun, Melanie says, time to enact uh, strategy M or something like that. And uh-huh. I, we don't know what that is, but they have other safe houses, and maybe it turns out one of them is Xavier's school or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, all right, Matt. Well, why don't we uh, move on to our uh, next topic? Um, okay. I, I will say really quickly, I think it would be interesting with all the CW and, and DCEU stuff and now the X-Men stuff to to do a, a long-awaited uh, um, comic books podcast where maybe we talk about some of the comic books that are like like we know, you know, Batman uh, Returns. Batman Returns? The Dark Knight Returns? Dark Knight Returns. Um, comic books that we know uh, are influencing a lot of these properties, um, and then comic books like with this guy Mojo or Joss mm-hmm. Whedon's Astonishing X Men, which I sure. have the first few volumes of. Sort of run through some of the comics that seem to be kind of influential with what's going on um, in, in the comic book universe. Yeah, sure, we can do that. All right, Abyssalcast listeners. So moving along with this past week's shows, we are going to talk about everyone's favorite DC superhero, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, Supergirl. Hell yeah. And if it's not your favorite, it's definitely the best of the TV bunch for sure. This was sort of a game-changing episode in a lot of ways, plot-wise. Oh yeah. Um, in terms of the Monal side of the story, who continues to be more comfortable and more likable as as a Paul Rudd clone, and uh, I mean that in all the best ways possible. He's so lovable. I like that they give him kind of a dorky haircut. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, you know they're not trying to make him look super smooth. Yep. Um, and he's just wearing like flannel shirts, but not like hipster flannel shirts. They made a great hipster joke <laughs> where they're like, "Is it the nice side of the is the the, the nice neighborhood or the sort of up?" coming hipster neighborhood and monel just goes yes <laughs> <laughs> um they continue to be obsessed with hamilton i think in arrow are in uh, flash. flash which we'll talk about a bit they mentioned hamilton again yep um and uh also i, I want to point out that supergirl um they were uh, her, apparently her and monel enjoy playing settlers of Catan with one another which is yep. awesome um oh matt I, I meant to ask you really quick we'll dive into supergirl what got you back into dominion because i, I like some deck deck building games but De- dominion although the original i find uh not particularly compelling i was hanging out with people who had it and that's what they wanted to play god damn it so- i wish i had friends who would had dominion lying <laughs> around <laughs> i'm so jealous i to like go out and seek people um, I was just, I was imagining you playing on your phone, which should be extremely boring with people would be cool. Anyways, it's clear the CW people are embracing their inner nerd from all sides of the spectrum. And, uh, that, that includes campy looking aliens. Um, personally, I really liked the opening battle scene. I thought the guy like looked like from star Wars in 1977. I really enjoyed it. 
It was pretty cheesy looking. I mean, it looked like they were scrounging the, I think the way I described it as like an eye party basement uh, dumpster or, you know, this is like old Doctor Who rubber mask, corny looking, but it's fun. It's fine. I, I mean, it's practical. You could have her actually hitting him, which was great. This is true, but it definitely, it was the first alien that I really thought, okay, that's clearly a guy in a mask. I mean, you know, you know who it reminded me of? Remember in the, the attack on, on Minas Tirith and the return of the king, the, uh, yeah. the the crippled leader of the orcs who doesn't even look like an orc and he's got like oh know, right he's his got face one is eye like half melted and yeah he's like the one smart orc in the entire trilogy and uh, yeah his, his face is melted his eyes shut he's kind of limping around it reminded me of that guy a little bit also the one eyed cyclops effect was was cool I, I, you know you kind of knew what she was going to do to shut him down but right. seeing it on screen was a lot of fun I mean I, to me it actually looked like a Power Rangers mask. Hmm. I mean, I thought it really looked corny. I enjoyed it and I laughed. Yeah. I didn't think it was their best makeup job by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, speaking of Power Rangers, do you know who plays the voice of the like weird computer guy that talks to them? Brian Cranston? Yeah, it was Brian yeah. Cranston. No he idea. was he was a voiced a bad guy on Power Rangers a long time ago. That one of his earliest roles actually was on Power Rangers. So. so anyway, so yeah, so there's a bounty on Supergirl's head. They do a nice misdirect where Monel asks his evil mother, played by Terry Hatcher. She denies it. I didn't let's put it this way. I didn't completely buy that she was telling the truth, but I also was was sold enough to keep me in the show. I, I don't know if you were you, you've been watching this much longer than me, if you were like, oh, this she's clearly lying to Monel here about being the one to put the bounty on, on car on Kara's head. No, I actually believed her. Yeah, I I, did too. I, I wasn't gonna be surprised if it turned out it was her, but I bought it in that moment that she wasn't the one responsible. Um mm-hmm. especially because it helps that Kevin Sorbo, that fucking asshole, uh, we'll get to all that later. Yeah, can we just mention him by his character's name and forget that he's a religious, anti-Semitic, anti-gay douchebag? Anti-philosophy, anti... Yeah, yeah it just... Let's just go by his character's name, because he actually puts in a pretty good performance. Yeah, when King Lar says we didn't do it, he clearly didn't know, and his actually being telling the truth that they didn't do it, or he didn't think they did it... Yeah. Help sell the scene. It was a it was a good episode. I, I really liked it. Uh, I thought uh, Queen Rhea with those kryptonite side blades were pretty cool looking. Um, Which is hilarious because completely. This was unrelated. a Kevin Smith directed episode, by the uh, way. Oh, nice. He's so good at them. Uh, yeah, I'm He's glad done a few episodes now, and I think he yep. really gets Supergirl, uh, which I like. He totally gets Supergirl. He totally gets good comic book making. Mm-hmm. But what's great about Kevin Smith is he likes the dark shit, but he also likes the comic booky shit. Exactly. So, like, you know, if <laughs> if you guys, for example, have seen Rogue One and you think you like it, but you're not sure, listen to him and his buddy talk for two hours, like a th- with a thousand f bombs. Their review about how much they fucking loved uh, Rogue One and specifically mm-hmm. how dark it is, and he's obsessed with Empire Strikes Back in particular, and all of his movies right. reference Empire Strikes Back and Vader. Oh, constantly. Um, 
but it's cool that he can also do the CW shows, especially sort of the most upbeat and optimistic and, and sunny of it. Terry Hatcher's great. Um, they're asking her to underact, which is fine. Um, and it's funny with the size because I just posted randomly the other day that I, I still love Raphael from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> and uh, seeing her giant size with the kryptonite was a very cool look. For sure. Um, I think... I think what Kevin Smith gets is that darkness is good, but the, it's it can't only be dark if it doesn't have some kind of heart to it. And yeah. he liked Batman v Superman, although in his review of it, he said, this mov- movie gave me a lot of reasons to hate it. And the biggest reason is that it doesn't have any heart to it. Um, and so he's not afraid of going dark as long as there is something at the core to drive all of it. And I think... He feels like with Supergirl, it can be dark, but there's still heart in it. And that's yeah. what he likes about it. I, I, I feel like I have to mention, man, while we're on this topic, that it mm-hmm. was just announced that Joss Whedon's working on a script for a Batgirl movie that he wants he's going to direct, uh, theoretically within the DCEU. Although they haven't confirmed right. that part. It's going to be DC Warner Brothers. They right. haven't confirmed that it's going to be in the DCEU. Now, my well, initial reaction was one of horror, because this felt like... Uh, revenge fuck you to marvel um but i should give joss a little bit more credit than that but my bigger horror was him getting sucked into the vortex of this crappiness known as the dceu however if he can bring his unique charm and do what supergirl's done in, in taking a female character and and bringing her um to the screen in a new way um, that that's exciting, and it, it's possible that you know after all the shit goes down, where Justice League isn't going to do well. Who knows if Flash and Aquaman end up really happening? Flash still doesn't have a director, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they're doing pre-production on Aquaman. Uh, it, it, you know that in 2019, let's say. Right. If, a ba- if a Batgirl movie comes out and they do a Dark Knight style where it could be in the universe or it could not be in the universe, that's what's great about Gotham, and it has a lot of heart, and you know with Joss Whedon that it's going to have a lot of heart to it, right. um, then maybe this is exactly the rejuvenation that he needs. He's had a two or three years straight of getting shit from people, um, including Mar- um, dealing with Marvel Studios, um, who kind of underpaid him and overworked him and the undue, in my opinion, criticism of, of Age of Ultron um, because people's expectations were ridiculously high. He's divorced, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's put on the weight. He doesn't look happy. So maybe this is the project that he needs. And if he can pull a Supergirl-type thing on the big screen, and by the way, you know who should play Batgirl? Who? Rosario Dawson, who voiced Batgirl <laughs> in the Lego movie. Uh, now, Rosario Dawson is stunningly gorgeous. You would not believe that she's in her mid-40s. But these days, I mean, dude, Donnie Yen is like 57 or something like that. I mean, I know he's a martial arts master, but Rosario Dawson in her early mid-40s could do it. And she was so great as the voice of, of Barbara Gordon, who's, uh, who's Batgirl. Sure. Um, so I, I, after having slept on it and thought about it a little bit, I think it could actually be a good thing because I do want DC to succeed because it means more good properties for us and puts more pressure on Marvel and Kevin Feige to up their game, which I think they need right now between Iron Fist and sort of recent developments at Marvel. So sorry to get way off topic, but with watching Supergirl and the announcement and stuff, I was thinking a lot about it and how I, 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 
I'm just going to say, and I'm going to throw it to you, Supergirl to me is head and shoulders above Arrow and Flash. I- I'm at the point where I can't watch Arrow, I can barely watch Flash, and I love every minute of Supergirl. I'm smiling, I'm laughing, I'm really engaged. Their writing team is just way better than the other writing teams. I, I agree with that. Supergirl has been the best this season by far. Uh, with uh, Batgirl, yeah. one, there's a good chance the DCEU will have completely collapsed before it becomes an issue. Like, if Justice League doesn't do well, if it's critically panned, which feels like there's a more than 60% chance that'll happen, and it doesn't make enough that you know they think it's worth the cost, they may just abandon the project, and then he's just making a Batgirl movie. So the DCEU stuff I'm fine with. And then there's also a very good chance the movie just falls apart before it ever gets made. He worked on a Wonder Woman script for years before the project was finally abandoned. That's true. So, you know, there's every possibility he's got a, like a, a, a premise. He's got a, a treatment, you know, an intro idea that never actually gets made, um, which is not good either. But no, so I, but, I think but no, but there's a difference. One is that was before the Avengers with Wonder Woman. That's um, true. And he had also ha- was on the ec- original X-Men writing team. Yes. And was knocked off that because he wasn't considered serious enough for <laughs> to be the X-Men until we got Brian Singer instead. So now that he's done the Avengers and made $3 billion plus in two movies for Marvel and launched the entire cinematic universe, it seems like Batgirl would, would be an easy one for him to do. And right. As you put out, as you said, there's enough time for him to write it into the DCEU if it's salvageable or to create a Christopher Nolan-style pocket universe for Batgirl if they decide to go in a different direction. Sure, although if he's going to do Batgirl, I would love it if he did not do a Christopher Nolan super dark, realistic one. I would rather have... There's no way that's happening. I hope not. I mean... He wasn't I, I, dark enough for the X-Men. How's he going to be dark enough for the Dark Knight? It's, there's no way. That's, that's what I think. I mean, yeah. I, I would much prefer that his version be something closer to Lego Batman or even the Schumacher style. Not The Schumacher movies, the Batman Forever, and they're, they're terrible movies. But I did like the idea of Gotham as this bright, over-the-top, super kinetic yeah. city instead of this dark dingy everything sucks city i think so, the character will be closest to his version of black widow would be my guess sure where uh, where you think she's just going to be a cold-blooded killer but because of scarlet because of the performance and the writing she really becomes quite lovable and sort of the heart of the team with hawkeye and if he does that then there are other batgirls he's not required to make the barbara gordon batgirl he could make cassandra kane who is, I believe, a League of Assassins member who defects, who becomes the next Batgirl, who yep. is, in fact, incredibly silent. She yep. very rarely talks and just as part of her training, and Batman has to kind of bring her out and get her to become like a person. Yep. Um, I think he... I, I have to research this, Matt. Yeah. He, if you put his feet to the fire in terms of him growing up, he might be more a DC guy than a Marvel guy in terms of the comics. I know he's written the Avengers and directed the Avengers, written the X Men, but I, I know for a fact true. he loves Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. And he was devastated that the Wonder Woman project did not happen. Now, it's possible that was just because she's the most empowered and famous female superhero character ever by like a right. thousand miles. Um, but my other comparison was going to be. 
be with Black Widow. Black Widow's not a traditional superhero, right? She doesn't have quote unquote superpowers. Yeah, um, so, although in the she's comics, got mad she fighting does. skills. She's a you healing know, factor, and yeah, but but it's not like Thor or Hulk. No, or no, you're right, Cap exactly. Level. Yeah, so um, yeah, so the more I talk about, it, the more excited I get, especially with Supergirl. Um, I know you, you you've been saying that that Kyler Lee, Shyler Lee, uh, Shyler Lee, yeah, yeah, she has been awesome, and 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 her girlfriend Maggie is also great. The only reason these side stories matter or work is performance based. They're completely yeah. unnecessary, but because the actresses are so great and they're talking about important issues, mm-hmm. like you know, it's interesting because when you have when you have girlfriends nagging men, it's like oh, you know. But when you have when you have two women, then the the female dynamics get way 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 more interesting, and you can actually explore just gender dynamics regardless of the relation the relationship orientation does that make sense yeah although none of their conversations it's not nagging that you know the way they no, talk no, to that each other is yeah i was i was just using it as an example of like a t- thing that is stereotypical that's put on female characters in right in shows like laurel and arrow or whatever you know what i mean like right it, 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 you you get to sort of throw away stereo gender stereotypes or, or at least forced to reevaluate them in female female relationships uh which i think is really cool mm-hmm. i agree uh so you know returning to supergirl the biggest complaint some people have had is that Supergirl herself has felt a little bit superfluous this season, that because she has sort of come to accept what she symbolizes, there hasn't been as much development for her as a person. And I do kind of agree with that, that a lot of the you know, the narrative driving the show has been either about Monel or for a little while it was about John Jones and McGann, or it's about Alex and her, you know, development as a character and a person. Um and I think this episode was more about other people than Supergirl. I don't necessarily mind that as much as other people do, because uh, I do really like this ensemble cast. I think it's probably the cast I like the most of the, you know, the DC four, um, the CW four. Uh, and so I don't really mind that. Yeah, again, it's not exactly an episode about Supergirl, even though the show is called Supergirl. Um, and she certainly still finds ways to be incredibly charismatic and enjoyable to watch. I, that's interesting. I don't detect that at all. I mean, Monel is her. That's the whole point. Her relationship with Monel involves her. It does, Um, but it's still mostly about him, including ultimately the reason that she has to go rescue him is because he offers to give himself up for her safety. Yeah. I just got to. There's one thing that really annoys me about the writing for Supergirl right now, which is she keeps talking about how much he's changed, and that's why she loves him, which yeah. isn't true. He's matured a little bit, but she's also matured a little bit. You know, he, like that's not how love works. That that's what Oprah well, tries to get people to believe is when you know women should try and change their men. 
but that's not really how the world works. Yes, you mature and you grow together and you compromise. You make compromises. You do things. You make sacrifices. All of these things are parts of relationships. But but I've been I've watched long enough to know that his character has not done a huge character change other than becoming a little bit less selfish and loving her and in th- loving her is the thing that's changed not something inside of him and he's doing a great job of not getting annoyed by these basically accusations that he was some horrible person before no i i'm not sure i totally agree with that i mean i i kind of think she says at least three times this episode, you've changed, you've changed, you've changed. She, that's true. And I think he has changed in that he has become more courageous. You know, there is for the first half of the season, he doesn't want to be a superhero. He just wants to be a bartender. He doesn't mind using his powers to be a super bouncer or be, you know, or be a, somebody who collects money for gangsters. You know, he, for a long time, does use his powers to kind of benefit himself and uses them selfishly. And coupled with him lying to her about who he is, I think he's undergone a more uh, dramatic transformation than you think. And it's not because Supergirl made him change. It's because he want he sought to change himself and he accomplished it. And yes, yeah. the show probably dwells on that idea too much because it's network TV and network TV likes to repeat ideas over and over and over again for audiences that are watching kind of in and out and not super, you know, paying attention when they're doing it. But I don't, I I think the change has been pretty dramatic and I don't think Supergirl is annoying for calling for encouraging him to continue on this path. Maybe it's just semantics. I don't believe that people change or can change. I believe that we grow, we mature, we evolve, we make I think choices. This is semantics. I mean, yeah, but how but is growth not It's just not the way changed. that she's. I, I I understand that, but the, just the way she's saying it and framing it, it's it seems like an antiquated idea. Now we can make changes in our lives, but that's not yeah. the core of us is not changing. And uh, by the way, I- even if that's true, I still don't agree because he's an alien from another part of the galaxy or whatever, and right. has to be taught why to care about these humans. I mean, this is such a Star Trek thing, right? I mean, how many Star Trek episodes end with Picard talking to some aliens about how they should be stop being so selfish and think about the greater galaxy or whatever, right? I right. Mean, so, I, isn't that encouraging them to change? No, it's just open. Opening their minds and their worldview. It's embracing. How is that their, not changing? Because it's embracing the good inside themselves that already exists. And the same goes the other way. Evil people don't change to become evil. They have a bad core in their soul, and they either embrace or don't embrace the bad core in their soul. I think. I mean, this Which is, is fine. really. If you just I, think that's semantics, that's fine. It's it, it's not the word change. It's just the way she keeps framing it. It seems like he, if you if you just watch this episode, you would have thought this guy was like a wannabe serial killer or something. You know, like this radical change that's gone on inside of him. Like it just she's they're stressing it too much. They should just pull back on it. Whatever. It's a minor. They thing. they maybe are stressing it too much. I do think he has undergone a transformation as a character. Because of his interaction with her, I mean, when he confronts his mom and dad in the previous episode, he says, when I am with her, even if she doesn't want to be with me, it makes me want to be a different person, a better person. I think that is very dramatic for somebody who originally just wanted to be a bartender and bookie, a guy who collects monies for a, a you know a, an alien bookie you know, kind mm-hmm. of a guy. 
um, I think it's much more dramatic than maybe you're giving him credit for. Uh, and yeah. even if it's this was always inside of him and he's just choosing to, to live this way now, that's still fairly dramatic change. But uh, if, if she also you know, acknowledge that she's changed that would make it help as well. The, she's put, making it so one-sided. Like, she was exactly where she needed to be, and she was the perfect person. Yeah, in that way, I agree with you. They haven't they haven't complicated her character much, and, and so everything's bouncing off her. She's the perfect human. But to be right, honest exactly. with you, after f- five seasons of Arrow and three of Flash, of just brooding and constantly questioning oneself, I'm actually okay with her being an out-and-out good guy for a while. Yeah, I don't mind it either, but I do think the critics who think that it would be nice if Supergirl was more the focus of a show called Supergirl, which she was in season one and hasn't been I, – I agree with them that she has not quite been the same focus of, of the episodes in season two, that she is hmm. moving around and helping other people solve their problems, and that's great. But it does feel like what's driving the show is not a narrative related to her. It's a narrative related to Monel, John for a little while, and Alex kind of as the the season's B plot. Um, and I don't mean B importance. I mean B as in the side plot. Um, and I that's okay. It's, just, it's yeah. extremely well done TV. I, I think, yeah. And again, this is just the difference between what you and I like in television and why I like the first i know you're still watching shield theoretically and i'm not but i think i like the first three seasons of shield more than you because i was cool with the plot coming first and character building stuff happening through the plot as opposed to the the character stuff being front and center constantly again i'm not someone who likes to spend time talking about relationships i just like to have relationships and so all the talking that characters do about their relationships and again the the maggie the maggie um alex thing can get so old but they at every turn they avoid cliches you know like they, they didn't have alex give maggie that huge guilt trip that you thought was coming right you know, I mean, she did yeah, pull. She did pull the. She did kind of pull the. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. But because of the performance and the writing, it was very understated, and it was clear that, you know, you know, and this is true to life. Relationships are not about making the other people fe- person feel bad about themselves and feel guilty. That's right. just going to destroy the relationship more. So either end it. Or accept who they are, but be open. I mean, the only thing that you need in a relationship, other than being attracted to each other, you know, on all on various levels, is honesty, right? Right. Because we're all imperfect, and so if we're just honest with one another, then you know we can hopefully work through these problems. And so, in that way, as much as I love Kara and Monel, yes, the the ladies' relationship is more interesting and more believable because they are kind of growing and maturing together through the relationship, and not constantly accusing each other. Of being, you know, underdeveloped or giving them guilt trips and stuff like that. No, I so, agree. Yeah. So in that sense, you're right. Lee has been the, the all star dramatically this season. Has been shouldering a lot of that. Um, which you know, I I've been a big fan of her, so yeah. I, I'm I'm happy oh, to see yeah. that. I whenever Although, they're on the screen, it's great. I, I will say I've said this before. Melissa Benoist is so awesome. Um, and this is something that Claire Danes does really well too at showing two, three, four emotions on her face all at once in like a mm-hmm. couple seconds shot. And I'm all about nonverbal communication with these things. You don't need to say everything, you know, the yes. look on her face with Monel 
sacrifices himself in the desperation that she shows for, for John's to go. Well, I guess that part of the plot, but I don't care because it was awesome. You know, I, 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 I'm okay with her not being front and center as long as she's getting great dramatic beats. And I've, there hasn't really been an episode yet where she hasn't had some, maybe there's been one or two, but she's had great emotional beats. I, I, I just don't agree with you this week. I thought she was awesome this week. Her relationship with Monel is fleshing out her character as that's happening. It's important if he's the one, you know, then the family issues, you have to deal with the in-laws, you know? Um, and, and I love the twist at the end that Terry Hatcher is not done because she's great and it's great to have his mother be evil. I just love mm. everything about this show. I like the cosmic stuff. I like the spaceships, the intergalactic. I like the aliens. I, honestly, I like that I, Kevin Sorbo is dead. I like that Kevin Sorbo's dead after giving probably the best performance of his life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take that as you will. And we can bridge or not, but like, I'm watching Flash. It's just like a slog. Like it, it really feels like two or three times as long as Supergirl because they're just slogging through it. The lines are predictable, fake moral quandaries, stupid plot twists, characters doing things that are clearly going to result. You know, like I'm going to let the magic guy out for two seconds and hold a gun at him, even though I tried to shoot him five minutes ago and nothing happened. I'm going to be able to control this situation, <clears throat> Joe West. Um, mm. It just doesn't ring true. And, and the thing is, man. There's great characters, both good guys and bad guys, on Flash, but they keep getting in their own way by falling back on cliches and just plot points that that, that just don't make sense. I'm at least see, I'm at least happy to see Cisco being back Cisco-y a little bit. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to see funny Cisco be back. <laughs> like when he says, "Oh, Gypsy, darling," um, I thought <laughs> yeah. that was pretty funny. Yeah, uh, some great puns in this one. Yeah, I the Joe West stuff doesn't make a ton of sense it doesn't quite work as well as i think they hoped it would this episode i agree with you they should have killed him this episode that would have been i I still maintain he might be the one who is not long for this world this Um, was the episode but you know for one i mean we have to acknowledge it would is really going to be a tough act to follow the musical episode no matter what the musical episode was an unquestionable success it was everything that was good about the flash when it's at its high points. Um, and yes, but so I would also argue that part of what made the musical a success beyond what was in it was what wasn't in it, which was this obsession with saving Iris, which I cannot stand and is really keeping me from watching more flash than maybe I would. Uh, yeah. I, I really hope now they've said next season, the bad guy's not going to be a speedster. So that is encouraging. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't have anything to do with time travel. Although I have to say this episode ends with them flashing. He's going to run into the future to get the info he needs. I am super down for that idea. I, I love the idea of going into the future and not just time traveling into the past. Um, I, so I really am excited for that. I, it's, they're not going like a thousand years in the future, which is what I want. It seems like they're going like, a year in the future, so right after Iris has been killed or whatever. I well, still this think it's a guy cool was idea. from the 54th century. Right, he was, which is years. awesome. And he, so this guy is who I think really saved this episode, is um, David Das Malchin from, people might know him from The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. He played a similar character on Gotham. He was also an Ant-Man. Uh, he, his abracadabra who i was nervous was just going to be another 
example of them being too enamored of the comic book lore and just bringing in a rogue to bring him, him in. I actually think he's one of the best additions to the Flash bad guy pantheon since season one, since the Trickster and Captain Cold and Heatwave. I think he's maybe number four. He is so deliciously malevolent. He is just so mean and cruel and awesome. I really, really, really liked him. Uh, I'm hoping we see more of him. I'm pretty positive we will. Uh, I liked what they did with his powers. I liked the way they explained it because in the comics, yeah, he's some, from so far in the future that his science looks like magic. Um, I thought he really, really worked as a bad guy and everything involving him was great. The side stuff with Joe and Iris, yeah, it's more of this melodrama that is dragged down season three and made it what I think both of us would agree is probably the worst of the three seasons so far. Um, but him as a bad guy, I really liked, I, I really, really enjoyed his performance as Abracadabra. I don't know. I think Mr. Spitlick was much better, but whatever. Mixes Spitlick isn't a Flash rogue, though. He's a Supergirl rogue. No, I'm know, talking but about just the bad guys. Trickstery, magic-y guy. I just, uh, they're yeah. a little bit different. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, Mixes Spitlick doesn't really have any aims other than have fun. I mean, all the, the stuff about how he wants Kara to marry him. Right. I have a hard time taking that premise seriously. I think he's just there to fuck with Supergirl for an hour, which is yeah. basically what Mr. Mixes Spitlick's role in the comics is with superman he never really uh, he actually just showed up in the comics and uh you you posted about this on facebook about two weeks ago where Mm -hmm. he screws with reality and it's sort of a more serious mr mixia's patella confrontation scene but most of the time he's just there to fuck with superman and i think on the tv show he's just there to fuck with supergirl Um, this this plays exactly into your point man which was that they need to stop introducing villains that are just trying to kill Barry and Barry's pe- people that Barry loves. Yes. Supergirl, Supergirl, even when they make it personal for Supergirl, like in this past episode, or yeah. it's kind of in the Mix of Spitlick episode, although he was just having fun, but still it was about her. Right. They're, they're finding ways to make it fun. But, you know, like for example, you know, Terry Hatcher might be putting a what's her name? I keep on Terry Hatcher. What's her? her what's Raya. Raya. Okay, so you know, Raya may may be putting a bounty on Supergirl, but it's still affecting the fate of the world and potentially the galaxy. You know, the 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 implications there. Everything is so personal with Flash all the time that he. I feel like Flash should just hang up the cowl. I mean, maybe that's the answer to not killing Iris, right? Just tell Maybe. Savitar that he's going to win and he's not going to fight anymore. The same way that Bruce Wayne tries to do that uh, in, in in the Dark Knight series. Like, uh, I, I just let's put it this way: if you really need Iris, let's put it on our, let's put on our writing caps for a moment, okay? If you right. really need Iris to die as an important part of the plot and, and character building stuff, then make her connected to something larger, right? That right. like the death of Iris not only de- devastates the flash but mm-hmm. leads to you know the flash going evil or other all sorts of other bad stuff happening that she's the trigger cuz then you accomplish two things at once you you help save the world and you help save your girlfriend if you're just saving your girlfriend how can he be focused i mean you could argue he's losing a lot of these battles because he's not focused but they're not even playing up that angle that would be no, cool no they're not and they're 
and this is really problematic and I don't, this is kind of like tone deaf and I'm surprised they haven't figured this out. They have objectified her. They have made her the object of this season is to save her life. And they have stripped out everything that made her a person in the first yeah. two seasons. She She's not a, a reporter anymore. She, yeah. yeah. She hasn't written a story. She hasn't in like two months. She hasn't investigated anything. All she is there to do is talk to mainly male characters to pump them up, to motivate them to save her life. And yep. it's really a bummer, and it is misogynistic. It is making yep. her not a per- – it's taking away her agency and taking away her personhood to simply make her something that drives men or is the object of men's missions. And uh. – one thing I liked, though, about Abracadabra is, for once, he is not posing a direct threat to the Flash and his loved ones. He's He wants to go home. He is just there to steal shit, to build a time machine, to go home. He doesn't really care about the Flash and his friends at all. He's willing to use them to get what he wants. But I think one of the reasons he works as a bad guy is because he's not so personally invested in the destruction of Barry Allen and his friends. I mean, he knows um, about it. He knows them because he's from 3,000 years in the future, and by then everybody's identities are well known. But he just – he doesn't care about any of that stuff. You it, know, seems, he, it seems unlikely that people in the 54th century would know or care about Barry Allen and Iris West, but who knows? Well, except in the comics, Barry Allen is the first in a long line of Allens who are all flashes, including in the th- – uh, 30th century, there are two speedsters, Bart Allen, his grandson, and Jenny Ognatz, his granddaughter, who are both speedsters. One comes back to the present, the other joins the Legion of Superheroes. So, you know, there's this idea that the Allen legacy becomes a whole family line of superheroes. Uh, the Thawns are also a line of villains. There's, yeah. um, in the, uh, the season one finale, when he's telling... Cisco, how to make a time sphere. He mentions Cobalt. Cobalt Blue is another Thawne, another villain whose last name is Thawne. And it's a f- like an ancestor of Reverse Flash. So mm-hmm. that's kind of like this. It's like the Hatfields and the, the McCoys. It's these two families, one of heroes, one of villains, fighting for millennia. It's kind of cool, actually. It's not explored as much as they probably could be. But when they do deal with this plot it's a it's a kind of fascinating idea okay here are my problems with the iris thing you damsel in distress obviously is number one yeah but it's made worse because she is a good actress and she is taking crappy writing for her both specific dialogue and overall character stuff Mm -hmm. and making it way more digestible than it should be basically just being Barry's therapist slash girlfriend. I I was watching this very closely last night when I watched it, that scene where, you know, she's saying, you know, we need to save people now. Don't worry about me right now. We need to, you know, take care of the problem at hand, blah, 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 blah. She almost sells that she is doing something right now because she is, I mean, she is helping Barry. And I like it when Barry's not the one, preaching morals to everybody else i think that's something that actually has improved since the first season i remember the first season you know it was like a moral of the week and 24 year old grant gusted was telling all the older people around him what the right thing to do was Mm -hmm. i actually prefer this secondly 
if you're going to make Cisco a superhero, and by the way, I'm getting more comfortable with Vibe just because he's more comfortable and they're just working it in in cooler ways. Yep. Why not make her Iris a superhero? She's fit. I mean, she's built like <laughs> someone who could – she's athletic. You could just tell that she's athletic. Like, why not make her do stuff? You know, the science nerds already have stuff to do every episode without having to be superheroes. Now we've got Killer Frost back, which I'm actually excited for because they'll give Daniel Panabaker some fucking meat to work with. She's been so goddamn underused. So both female characters. So why can't you make Iris a superhero? And I don't want to hear about the comics, you know? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, if it works for your show, just do it. So what, Jimmy Olsen can be a superhero, but Iris West can't? I, I just, I don't understand it. I don't well, understand it. Okay, I feel bad for her. Example because Jimmy Olsen hasn't worked as a superhero at all. We both agree Guardian is consistently the worst part of any given Supergirl episode, and when he's not in it, we don't notice. So I won't talk about the comics, but don't give me Jimmy Olsen as an argument for making Iris West into a superhero. I'm fine with changing up what they do with their character. That is not the answer. I mean, I would rather they spend Why not? The time It works for Laurel. Her- Laurel was way more interesting once she became Canary. I don't think... Yeah, but Laurel's drive, her motivation, lends her more naturally to being a hero. And yes, there is the background of what her character previously has been. Iris West, in the TV show or the comics, it's never been made clear that that's kind of what he she wants. You know, I, This idea that she can make a difference in the world as a reporter... I would rather they flesh that out more, especially because, you know, we are living in a time when journalism is under constant attack from our government. And I would love to see more pro-journalism st- uh, stories in superheroes because uh, there are all these natural crossovers. You know, Supergirl has been fairly pro-journalism. I would love to see them do the same thing with the Central City Gazette. You know, I'd love to see Iris crack a case, you know, proves, you know, break a story, something like that. That would do more for me to save her character is to see her go her own way and develop these other aspects of herself other than Joe West's daughter and Barry Allen's girlfriend or fiance. Um, I don't think making her a superhero is really the solution. Uh, for one, because there's there's too many fucking superheroes <laughs> on The Flash. There just is. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, she's hanging around Star Labs and she's giving her advice. In some ways, she's not that different from Alex Danvers. I know Alex Danvers has a gun that she uses occasionally. But Alex Danvers' main purpose is to, one, be Kara's sister and best friend. Kara's sister and best friend. Two, to be one of the sort of dramatic leads and hearts of the series. And three, to help give advice to, to Johns and the team right at the station it's not that often that that alex is fighting and that's fine you know i mean it it, just the fact that she could and she does occasionally you know makes it more interesting and so yeah i agree you don't need to make iris a superhero but there's got to be something else she can do other than be lois lane as well right i mean yeah no that's fair um and i don't have an answer for that i i uh, I don't know. I, I hope they have solved. They. I hope they're thinking about this. I hope they recognize that they're kind of screwing up with this character. And we know it's coming back. We know it's going to have at least one more season. If they can write this ship, then the show I still think is salvageable. 
If not, if we get more of these same problems next year, I think it's going to hurt the ratings, and I think the show is done after the fourth season. Just like I am pretty positive, unless Arrow can rebound dramatically, it's done after season six. Um, there's not been nearly enough to save it. You know, I, I, I and I think ratings are going to drop for it too. Whatever. Okay. All right. You want to you do any more uh, CW talk? Just going to throw out their legends. Uh, so last week, I wish I had been able to watch it on time because I think you would have enjoyed hearing about it because. Yeah, I might have to get this one. Yeah. Yeah. The. The current arc, the Finding the Spear of Destiny arc, it began with an episode where they have to rescue Rip Hunter, who is pretending to be a filmmaker working with a young George Lucas. And the episode has a lot of Star Wars jokes in it. And it's about the role on a meta level. It's about the role George Lucas played in basically mainstreaming sci-fi and genre and genre stuff to the point that now we have all these superhero shows The episode last week was a spiritual successor to that in that it's all about saving a young J.R.R. Tolkien from the Battle of the Somme. There's a lot of, you know, there's a quote about two towers. They tell him we're on a quest to destroy an object of power. There's a ton of Lord of the Rings jokes. And there's probably also a meta message in there, too, about the role Tolkien played in creating the modern genre landscape you know in that he basically invented modern fantasy as we think of it yep. um with lovecraft but yes well, lovecraft created modern horror and he was really the one who created this idea of larger connected universes you know the cthulhu mythos where cthulhu and his, the other elder gods show up in story after story and secretly this town is they worship this elder god and you know in the antarctica there's slave beings created by this god, all this stuff that would later comic books would really kind of leap at the idea of, that was Cthulhu. Uh, that was Lovecraft. He didn't do a lot with fantasy. He did. Yeah, he didn't do a lot with fantasy, but I want to point out. He did almost nothing with fantasy. He did a right. lot of horror and a lot of science fiction. But 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 the the uh, starting with the book that I talked about on Feist, Rage of a Demon King, right. introduced demons from other dimensions into mm-hmm. that fantasy world and that's something that's been in other fantasy series as well so right. and, and the just the how gross and disfigured the demons are how they're described you know being made of of humans so that you can see the people like stitched to their skin and coming from these yeah, unknowable realms yeah the- so it, it has influenced fantasy in that oh. sense not not sort of traditional high fantasy yeah no for sure i mean you know, and it had, you know, Hellboy, for instance, is a comic that is heavily based on Lovecraftian imagery. But yeah, the idea of the giant tentacled monster, Lovecraft really invented that. Um, and that's kind of changed and evolved and, and really had a long standing effect on fantasy and sci fi over the last, you know, almost 190 years now. Um, but the episode was really fun. You know, the whole episode. A lot of fun, a lot, you know, the whole show this season has kind of taken this approach. Uh, one reviewer I read kind of phrased it as their attitude is if it seems like fun, let's do it. So if right. we want to have uh, the Adam running away from a dinosaur, okay, that sounds fun. Let's do it. If they want to go to Camelot, okay, that's fun. Let's do it. And so this one was hey, how about they save Tolkien and make a lot of Lord of the Rings jokes? Sure, that sounds fun. Let's do it. So that was last week. It ends with the bad guys getting the Sphere of Destiny. They say some shit in Aramaic. They rewrite all of reality. And that gets us to this week's episode, which 
is all about the the good guys remembering who they used to be, trying to figure out how to fight the bad guys. Heatwave helps the bad guys last week and kind of has a change of heart. Um, there's a great line where they're asking, do you even remember what language the the incantation was in? And Heatwave goes, Aramaic. And uh, Jack says, how do you even know what Aramaic is? Passion of the Christ. Good movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which... <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny, but the joke, the episode this week has as many anti-Trump jokes and statements as Supergirl has made. I think Legends may actually win the prize for the best one, which is Eobard Thawne in this rewritten reality, uh, the Reverse Flash, Matt Lesher's character, has become basically the king of Central City. And when some of the other bad guys meet with him, he's getting off the phone and he says, oh, hi, Mr. President. Oh, dinner at your private club? Yeah, sure. That sounds great. I got to go. Love to Mel. And then he hangs up. And so they interviewed the EP for Legends, Mark Guggenheim, about uh, after this last episode. And he says, it's funny, back when we planned out the season and the idea of a dystopian world ruled by a narcissist who is completely without morality, (laughs) it felt a lot more far-fetched than it became. Truth be told, it really turned out to be more reflective of current times than we expected. Um, <laughs> so, a life imitating art, but man, was that joke funny when it hits. And, uh, awesome. you know, they show the, the Legion of Doom's base, which looks like the giant helmet from Super Friends. Uh, I thought that was a really well-designed uh, set. So, yeah, I, Legend is pretty good. At this point, I think the only thing they can do is rewrite all of this season and make it so it never happened because so many things that sort of need to happen for the sh- for like history to not be ripped in half have changed. Like the season begins with a JSA member, Dr. Midnight, telling them not to get on the ship, but refers Flash kills him before he ever does it. World War II Vixen dies before giving birth to the woman who would become the modern-day Vixen who showed up on Arrow last season. They have brought Captain Cold into the future from before he ever joined the Legends, which means he never gets killed in, like he does in Season 1 of Legends of Tomorrow. So many things have changed at this point that the only way the show makes any sense or is if they make it so that none of this season ever happened which I think is going to piss a lot of fans off, but it's the only solution they have left as far as I can tell. And there is only one more episode, uh, by the, when the time listeners are listening, it'll be the day. Well, it'll probably come out Monday and it's the next day. This coming Tuesday is the, uh, which would be April 4th. That's it for the show. So uh, they've got one hour and I think it ends with them just saying, Hey, guess what? Season two never actually happened. And then they're probably going to end it with some, cliffhanger that's going to introduce the new characters that'll be in season three i still hold out hope for legion of superheroes i I talk about them way too much i realize and that's kind of my thoughts on legends of tomorrow to be fair man i mean based on my growing rapidly growing affection for supergirl and my falling out with arrow Mm -hmm. which is starting to feel like a shakespearean play of tragedy (laughs) with arrow I mean, it, 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 and what's hilarious is, you know how how Shakespeare uses the five act structure. Yes, it's kind of like the five act structure. Act one, amazing, settles in a little bit. In act two, I'm talking about seasons right. as well. 
Act mm-hmm. three is sometimes often the best or most exciting act yep. in a Shakespeare play or tragedy. Act four, everything gets really tense and you're not sure if you're still enjoying yourself or not. And then, you know, act five, everyone dies <laughs> and a new, a new order uh, <laughs> emerges. Um, but I mean, the way you talk about legends and the plot lines and the fact that I like Brandon Routh and uh, Katie Lutz, it seems like I almost could watch that show at this point. Honestly, Legends of Tomorrow sets a lower bar for itself and hits it way more consistently than Arrow and Flash fall short of the lofty expectations they seem to have for the quality of their own programming. But at like, least it has like a Guardians of the Galaxy feel and they're not taking 100%. themselves too too seriously and it's like a super team of idiots and like Yeah, and they call yeah. themselves idiots and losers and morons. I, I Smart. mean these people are having more fun than Flash and Arrow anybody on those shows are having. And How many more episodes? One. Okay. So I'm going to buy the last two weeks online or, or DVR it somehow, and I'll, I'll watch the, the next one. Sure. I mean, you might like it. I, I, it's You don't need to invest the same degree of emotion or energy in it that you need to with Supergirl you re- is really worth the energy, and I think Arrow and Flash want you to expend some energy caring, uh, but they don't really pay it off in any really satisfying way. Yep. I would even say Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of wants that as well. Yep. Legends of Tomorrow has a very we-don't-give-a-fuck attitude, and it's actually pretty fun. Yeah, and, and the fact that I not only don't care about but like the cheesy alien at the beginning of Supergirl this week, I mean, honestly, dude, this is yeah, this is becoming a thing for me at least with television where I just don't care about the effects, right? Because there are too many good, sh- there are too many shows with good effects like Into the Badlands. I can't stomach even three seconds of anymore. By the way, the guy who's playing uh, Ezra Miller mm-hmm. looks like MK's older brother. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Doesn't he? <laughs> So the question is going to be, who's going to have the douchier face? I mean, it's it's a it's a real sh- long shot. Ezra Miller, boy, he looks so douchey. I mean, I don't like Aramis Ramirez, but man, I I despise everything about that God. Barry Allen. So I think he's going to take the crown. Um, God, remember when, this- remember when Hayden Christensen was the worst thing in the movies? Oh yeah, he he looks like fucking Patrick Stewart in comparison to these clowns. Yeah. Um, God. Here's the food analogy for these shows. Arrow is a steak that you order at a restaurant that is very expensive and they tell you it's like amazing and it's okay. Or maybe it's not even okay. You know, it, it's fine or it's maybe even bad and it's your dinner and it's not satisfying and you're mad and you don't feel it's worth it. Legends of Tomorrow is like an ice cream sundae or it's a dessert. You don't care. You don't care that it's pretty empty. It's just enjoyable to eat. Um, you know, it's like an ice cream sundae, you know, that there's no way to make an ice cream sundae really amazing. It's just vanilla ice cream and hot sauce and like peanuts. Uh, but it's consistent and it's fun to eat and you feel good and you feel kind of like a kid eating it and that's all it wants to be. And that's all it is. Uh, arrow is a steak that's not done as well as the people making it promise it is. Yeah. Although again, I still like Barry Allen. I like Grant Gustin and I like his character in a oh, way. Smile, I've grown, have a good what? time. I want to well, smile, yeah, have a good time. <laughs> I'm going to go back on my own complaints when people say it's not an actor's fault uh, and say that's. I mean that the show isn't writing scenes that make it appropriate for him to be happy-go-lucky anymore. I 
think they should. I wish yeah. they would. But he can only play the scene the way that it's appropriate to play it. And if he's laughing and hop skipping around while Iris's life is in danger, that doesn't seem very appropriate. You know, when he gets to cut loose and be fun, like in the musical episode, he's still really good. I mean, that episode was a reminder of why they cast him in the first place. Yep. Yeah, I guess what I liked about the first season was I knew nothing about The Flash. And right. I'm going, this is going to get so old so quickly. Because it's the same green screen shot green screen shot uh, of him doing the slow motion running. Fast, 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 slow motion matrix. The fast, 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 running up buildings, blah, blah, blah. It always looks great, but it's always kind of the same shot. But they kept finding creative ways that they needed to use his power and that they would use his power. Now right. it's like almost an afterthought. There's all this drama... When I mean drama, I mean like so much drama in the LBC is kind of hard being Snoop Dio double G drama. You exactly. know what I'm saying? Like melodrama. Yeah, and uh, you know, and then it's like, oh, he's going to use his flash powers here. It's like almost an afterthought, you know, the the superhero stuff, and which is why I'm cool with the Supergirl. That it's not a heavy character episode every week. They find cool ways to use her powers and work it into the storyline. Um, I you know that was the thing that did stick with uh, uh, help me stick with Arrow. Obviously, was the great fighting, but it just can't do it anymore because the rest of it's so painful. And it's also because I loved the show for a while, and so that makes it worse. You know, now I thought because Into the Badlands, I went in just for the fighting, I could stick right. with it, but there's just too many annoying characters. And why is not- yeah. Martin Soka still alive? We don't even need to talk about this. <laughs> um, I yeah. I like that he's on the just because I like his care. I like him as an actor. But his southern accent is horrible, and it's gotten worse in season two. I mean, it's almost laughable. For some reason, I think he's wearing more eye makeup than last year, and suddenly his like his barony has become a recycled set from Game of Thrones. So I, I don't really want to talk about Into the Badlands. This last yeah. episode was really nothing to, to right. write home so about. Let, let's end on The Expanse, Yeah, which, for better or worse, even though I thought we can debate – I thought this episode was the best episode since Thomas Jane died, even though it wasn't amazing. I would actually agree with that. But there was that that run there, those first five season two episodes, where it really stuck in my brain. Here I'm having trouble keeping it sort of in my mind's eye for more than a day or two, so I'm taking more notes. Mm -hmm. I will say that... I both predicted and wanted Gunny to have a w- much wider emotional range and to have a relationship with Agdashlu. And that is indeed the case. And we can, I think, agree that the Earth stuff and those two women were by far the best part of this episode. Oh, yeah. I'm still waiting to find out why we should care at all about Ganymede. I, I think we will get an answer to that pretty <laughs> soon. But the Ganymede stuff, who fucking... I mean, wh- whatever. I think I sent you my notes, but I literally have a note, my only note that's in all caps and ends with multiple exclamation points and question marks that just says, what the fuck is Ganymede? <laughs> exclamation yeah. point, exclamation point, exclamation point. What the fuck is it? Who cares? No, I for sure. I, and I had the same thought of what is the point of this. Um, but uh, the Earth stuff was much more interesting. I, I liked Gunny's escape. I really like the way they the actors who are Martian deal with earth grav. I thought it was very effective the way they talk about and the, the way they display all the problems that being on earth causes the, the brighter sun, the gravity, the horizon, all of that, how you don't have that on Mars. And it does make you think a little bit what growing up on another planet would do to you. Um, 
And I find it fascinating. But yeah, when Agdashu finally tracks her down, and clearly that is not the end of that uh, relationship, that's the most interesting part of the show. Absolutely. Um, I-, I will say, I mean, let's just call this book two as well as season two. It-, it feels like more like a procedural, right? It feels like they're investigating stuff and it's a slow burn. I- in principle, I'm okay with that, I guess. Um, I did love the scene where Holden let Amos beat the shit out of that guy <laughs> and was kind of grinning while it was happening. We haven't seen that sort of dark side from, from Holden yet. He's getting desperate, though, and it was the right move. And, and Naomi gave him just the right amount of shit about it, you know? I mean, she could, she, Naomi's always bordering on being a wet blanket, but they, they, they write it sparsely enough. Um, uh, you know what i'm saying where she speaks her piece and then that's it you know um it's not just a constant nagging him thing um i think i'm okay with the new asian guy i'm not really sure that's going to be up to the writing yeah um and uh oh also when after amos beats up the guy and the the asian guy's asking him about it amos says some people deserve to be punished i wonder if amos is also talking about himself um and, uh, you know, he's clearly damaged. Um, a-, a Kamal singing country music was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was singing the classic I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. Yep. Which our Brazilian band Nation Beat did an incredible cover of because they're, they're a mix of, uh, well, we don't officially work with them anymore, but we worked with them for a while. They are a mix of Brazilian musicians and sort of country rock musicians because there's a lot of uh, interesting um, musical connections between northern Brazil, uh, which has like a fiddle and a banjo-type instrument and stuff and, and mu- music from Louisiana in the south. And they, it's a Hank Williams song originally Hank Williams song. people yep. wondering. Yep. yep, nice one. And... Um, uh, it was a great zero G scene uh, with him with with the mag boots. I thought was awesome. I, I really like Cass Anvar. When they give him meat to work with, he feels like a real actor to me. You know, he feels like a guy that casts as an actor. And to be honest, he has the most experience of the four of the crew. I mean, if you just look at his credits, For um, sure. he's also the oldest. I, I like that they're not afraid to embrace the Star Trek side with the techno babble and hypothetical mm-hmm. science. Um, and. Uh, uh, everything continues to look great. It looked like the gunny in the sea scene was just a horrible green screen shot, but then they did seem to be at the edge of some water when Agdashlu comes to warn her. So I wasn't sure if that was a real sea or not. You know, with science fiction, you're never really sure. Um, the only thing I will say, man, and, and if you have any thoughts you can add, I, I think they are missing a Starbuck. It, it shouldn't be Naomi. But the reason Starbuck w- was so important was as dark and grim as everything else was around them, she actually got more smiley and more crazy and funny the darker the situation was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so like you almost wanted the situation to get really bad because then that's Starbuck at her best. She's out there laughing her ass off, shooting Cylons and stuff. I think this show could use a character like that. Um, I think Kamal does that a little bit. Um, or could do that more. Does that make sense? So it's not just one face on everyone, even though they're mostly doing a good job. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's about right. To have I, a kind of like Western, you know, almost type character, like embracing danger and the love of the fight and that kind of thing. Well, it does seem like Gunny wants to be allowed to cut loose and really hasn't. You know, she's itching for a fight. She really wants a fight, and I get, I get the sense that in this episode, after meeting those homeless people. She's starting to mellow out in some respect, but I think 
once she finds out the truth about what the Martian government is doing, because clearly this whole thing with, um, you know, the, the guy without the space suit that's controlled by protomolecule or, or whatever the hell that was, she's going to want to kill something, you know, fight someone. And so whether or not she joins the Rosinanti or attacks the UN or goes rogue right. and attacks her Martian superiors, she is really itching for a fight in the same way that Starbuck, I think, has always been a kind of shoot first, ask questions later, aggressive kind of a person. And that worked for her character. That's true. And when we first meet Gunny on the, doing the simulation on Mars. Right. She's kind of laughing and having a good time. Um, you know, with, she has been it. held back and held back and held back. Yeah. And she's going to break at some point without a doubt. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, we've got, um, God, how many, what, three, three more Expanse episodes maybe? At most. I mean, I think is we're it, getting is pretty it, close to the end. Yeah. Is it taking a break? Uh, no, it's just going to run its full season and then it's going to stop. Uh-huh. Um, final okay. episode is April 19th. So yeah, we have three more episodes. Uh-huh. Um, and the last episode, interestingly, is called Caliban's War. So, yep. All right. Well, can, can I give my final little thing and I'll let you have a final thought? Sure. Go ahead. So I'm just going to do a quick Star Wars update. Um, so people, you should check out my Rogue One commentary, which I had a lot of fun with. Um, and uh, as promised, I did it the day of release, although I didn't end up doing that night, Matt. It was so late. I did the next after doing it back from work. Had a lot of fun. Check out my Rogue One commentary in the Bizzlecast. Star Wars Rebels concluded its third season, which was mostly very successful. Um, certainly the high highs were probably the best of the series. There were a few too many, like, let's just like rate a depot kind of episodes, but that's to be expected with the Rebels. Um, it ended with a two-episode um uh thing which is just 40 minutes of content basically <laughs> on disney uh where grand admiral thrawn who was initially introduced uh in the what's now not canon early 90s by timothy zahn although his books were so famous that a lot of it's been repurposed for um yep. f- for the the current official canonical star wars universe so grand admiral thrawn who's a big evil blue guy um, who can fight and is also a badass uh, commander, uh, leading a surprise attack. Um, uh, uh, D- David uh, um, Oyelowo uh, voices Agent Callus, who was a cool. pretty nasty um, seeming, I know, just straight up pretty nasty uh, Imperial agent. Uh, but he flipped sometime earlier this season or late season two and has actually been their inside source of information. And Thrawn was sort of playing like he didn't know Kalos has flipped, but he knew Kalos had flipped. And he used Kalos as bait, essentially, it led them to um, the secret um, rebel base um, on the planet of, I cannot remember the name. Um, and it was, it was pretty cool. They put up a blockade. Uh, they make use of some Star Wars ships we don't usually see called interdictors, which are like small star destroyers, but they put out a pulse so that you can't hyperspace when you're in vicinity of them. So they couldn't escape. It was like a giant net. Um, and, uh, and a little bit of a tribute to, uh, Rogue One, the, uh, the head of the rebel fleets, um, uh, uh, 
uh, named Commander Sato, a great Asian character and Asian voice actor, <laughs> smashed his rebel capital ship into one of the interdictors, cool. um, giving Ezra Bridger, who's the young Jedi, who some people, Adam Dietz, uh, think is the father of Rey, we'll get back to that some other time, uh, time to get to Mandalore, uh, the Mandalorians, which is where Boba Fett has some connection to. Um, one of their crew members is like one of the leaders on Mandalore, and they come back, and they have a big space battle, and then there's a ground battle, and there's AT-AT walkers, and there's a shield, and a fight, and it was great. It was awesome, awesome uh, Star Wars fight action. Um, and there's this like giant... Remember I told you that the old Doctor Who guy was voicing this bizarre Jedi creature, Tom... Um, is it Tom? Baker? Yeah, a voice, this thing called the Bendu. He's like a giant, friendly-looking minotaur that comes out of the earth, almost like the trash heap from Fraggle Rock, if you guys know what, uh-huh. uh, the trash heap. And uh, he basically gets bullied by um, Kanan Jarrus, who's the elder Jedi, uh, voiced by Freddie Prince Jr., who's awesome on the show, like really killer, killer voice acting. Uh, gets the Bendu to use the elemental forces of the planet to drive back the Empire, and they basically escape. Um, it they are saying next year is going to be even darker. It's been getting darker every year, which makes sense because it's getting closer and closer timeline-wise to Rogue One and A New Hope um, and building up towards that. Adam is very sure that Ezra and the Mandalorian crew member, uh, Sabine, who have a little romantic thing going on. They're going to be the parents of Rey. We will see. I still think it's going to be Obi-Wan, and they're hinting that the first standalone movie after Episode Nine, the final of the new Saga trilogy, is going to be an Obi-Wan movie that takes place between phantom uh, i'm sorry between revenge of the sith and a new hope and in fact the best episode the second best episode of this season was actually right before the finale where they go to um tatooine to find obi-wan to get some advice about stuff and obi-wan kills darth maul for a second time this time for good and what was so great about that and i'll stop my little rant here is you think they're gonna have a big lightsaber battle because the rebels does amazing long extended lightsaber battles and because it's a cartoon they can use force powers that are, are, are way more extreme than what we normally see and in this fight obi-wan literally kills him in like half a second you think you have this long fight and he just like skewers him for good this time um and so uh my guess is obi-wan is going to be the father of Varey. we'll have to see with episode eight coming out this uh this winter so star wars is uh is going strong um i would say has the edge on uh, on marvel right now but we'll have to see how this year go this year goes so uh all right, man, I'm throwing it to you. Any, any shows or anything you want to uh, talk about? I mean, my one thought on that is probably Star Wars is a little more interesting than Marvel right now, which is kind of taking it in the teeth with uh, Iron Fist. But I think once Guardians of the Galaxy comes out, Marvel is going to return to the top, although there probably will be a trailer for Episode Eight connected to Guardians of the Galaxy. That's my – I don't know that, but that would seem to me to be a very obvious – thing that uh disney will do the thing we've got coming up this week by the time this episode airs the walking dead i'm sorry one, one more quick thing to add um about the star wars comparison yes you're right about it's sort of an up and down between the two studios but i'll just say that like i have a niece for example who all she loves is pixar movies and frozen's her favorite movie but she has a lightsaber and like a little ray outfit that she loves to wear and she could get right, because we about still don't books. have any female yep. leads for a marvel thing we, we don't yeah. obviously i mean we, we, i gotta hope wonder woman's successful for a thousand reasons but um I, i'm sorry to interrupt you buddy I, I am I am so done with everything DCEU. By the time this episode airs, Walking Dead will have aired its season finale. 
We will definitely be talking about it in episode 12. Uh, the episode that we watched, we are recording this on Saturday, April 1st. So the week prior, which would have been Sunday, the 25th, um, it was a setup episode for the finale. I am hoping we get an absolute bloodbath. Uh, there was a pretty cool scene in this past episode where Is that the they, whole show. Yeah, but there are some episodes that are quieter and some that are louder, you know, or there's, there are onslaught like siege episodes, but that's not every single episode. And we haven't really gotten a true just siege where, you know, when they're living in a prison, the final episode that season, the bad guys try to take the prison and they drive a, a one of them's got a fucking tank and he drives through their fencing and he's blowing shit up with his tank until Daryl Dixon throws a grenade down the barrel of the tank and destroys the tank. He like runs right up to it and drops it in. It's pretty awesome. I'm still waiting for that kind of just blood pumping awesome uh, right. fight, just like four hour long battle. And it's an extended episode. So I think you only do that if you're planning a pretty long action set piece. I hope it pays it off. Um, I haven't loved this season. I have really not loved Jeffrey Dean Morgan and his kind of ridiculous over-the-top portrayal of Negan, who I understand in the comics is a ridiculous over-the-top villain. Yeah. It just, it hasn't worked. Um, I, I don't know much about uh, Walking Dead, but I know you're not alone in, in feeling that way. Yeah, I, it's, it's just, when he, says, when he says things like, you got a pair of giant-sized lady nuts, and I want to harness them, and that's a pretty good imitation okay. of his speech patterns. It's just... Even when he's bashing people's brains in with a bat covered in barbed wire, I can't take him seriously. He's just – he's not scary. He's goofy, and I don't think that's the vibe they were going for with him. So you know, I, I hope this is the last year for him. I, I, I really hope this isn't a two-season arc of how do they beat the saviors. I think there are more interesting villains down the road uh, like the Whisperers and Alpha that they could bring in that would be – actually a little bit more frightening uh and not just dumb so i'm hoping this season finale pays it off i'm positive if walking dead hasn't been renewed yet i'm sure it will be it's really consistently excellent for ratings and that's really all anybody cares about so uh, we'll get more of that next year and i hope uh this episode goes out on a high note cool man um good stuff um, we, we have a couple shows taking a break. Is it just Supergirl? Supergirl, Arrow, and Flash are all off. But we get uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is coming back this week. So, yes, the CW is starting to uh, fade for a few weeks, but we have lots of stuff coming up. iZombie debuts Tuesday. Better Call Saul debuts the following Monday. Um, we are getting Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. back. We also have... Doctor Who, Fargo, and American Gods all starting up in April. So, yeah, we're not going to be talking Supergirl for a few weeks, but we will have plenty of other stuff to talk about. Well, you'll have a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm a little concerned about myself. Uh, three more episodes of The Expanse. I'll watch Legends next week. Um, in the meantime, though, yeah, American Gods I'm looking forward to. Um, so it might be me interviewing you uh, <laughs> for a couple weeks, which would be fine. Um 
but uh, we're always looking for new uh, new content, and I'm able to get in my little my little plugs here or there. Um, I am trying to find some more just like short run Netflix shows. Uh, I did try Peaky Blinders. It was a little too slow and moody and British for me, right? Uh, which is probably why I'm not going to love Taboo. It sounds like. Um, but taboo, I'm definitely I'm, moody and British. So yeah, I, I, I'll try that as well. No more Legion, obviously. Um, nope. probably won't get into the Americans. I just have too much to catch up on there. Um, and Fargo's not really my thing. Um, I I know Mr. Crawley is a, is a genius, but it wasn't like Legion made me want to see everything that he's ever done. Badlands, <laughs> I have really no connection to at this point. So uh, we'll just have to see. We'll see how the next few weeks go. Do you think that it was, this was my last question? Do you think it was intentional that Agents of Shield was waiting for CW to go off for it to come back? I'm gonna say yes. I, I think ABC is time it, times its release schedule in such a way as to take advantage of when its main competition, the CW shows, go on their hiatuses. Um, I, I think Flash and Legends have definitely pulled audiences away from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., coupled with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. sucking. Uh, and I think they are, you know, they've their last episode was one of the best the show has ever done. And so I think they're really hoping this last arc is going to be, uh, you know, a winner for them. I'm not confident. There has not been an announcement of cancellation, but there has also not been an announcement of renewal, so far as I know. And in previous years, by the end of March, it had been announced uh, that the show would be renewed. And the fact that we are now April 1st and still don't know, that I think is a bad sign. I, I mean, it's really, it gets less than a 1.0 in ratings each week. That to me is very bad for ratings. And considering ABC and Disney are starting to cut m- money, you know, there's going to be more layoffs at ESPN this year. My hunch is they're not going to keep rolling the dice with this thing that nobody in the Marvel Studios seems to like. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Feige's being a dick because if you just wanted to tank it, just go public or just tank it. Don't do the slow burn of destruction because, you, uh, you know, the actors... And again, you know, who's one of the co-founders of S.H.I.E.L.D.? The Whedon Brothers. So... I don't think Joss is particularly happy with Marvel. That's fine. I will say, man, though, in retrospect, you know, three seasons into Flash, five Arrow, I, I really don't think the first couple seasons of S.H.I.E.L.D. are are worse than Flash or Arrow. Uh, in some ways, they're better, certainly, than the more recent stuff. Again, I can't speak to the most recent season of, of S.H.I.E.L.D., which you've really not been high on. But no. there's there's no writing... Um, there's no writing that goes on in the later seasons of Flash and Arrow that's better. Um, and at least, yeah, at least you get some plot, whether it's good or not, at least you get some plot and some movement in the S.H.I.E.L.D. episodes. And, and their casts are, are, are easily as good, or at least has enough good members. Um, I, you know, I'm wondering if it was reversed. You know, would it be different if if Shield, if the Shield show were a C, were, was a, a a DC property and, and vice versa? Say that again. Well, like like, at- like Shield is not a character drama. It's an action adventure show where right. they try and build some character with with okay writing and really good actors through the adventures that they have. Yes. Uh, CWs are are comic book dramas that have a lot of action but feel ultimately like dramas. 
first and foremost, which on paper, uh, you know, should always work, but because of lackluster writing in recent years for Arrow and Flash, isn't necessarily the case. So I'm mm-hmm. just saying, if it was DC that was Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the quality was the same, would you be more invested, or it's just you just don't really love the structure of, of the show and how the writing's been? For one, even if the show is plot-driven, it still seems to want you to care about these characters, and it... Right. In a lot of cases, I don't think it's put in the work or it's taken cheap ways out. Like the problem with season three was it was all about relationships. Everybody had to be in a relationship and everything was driven by relationships. There was Coulson and the the lady that Ward kills. They bring back Ward and um, Sky, which never worked as a relationship. And I'm I'm not looking forward to seeing that back. I'm not looking forward to seeing Brett Dalton at all in this final arc of this season um you know there was sky and electric man which i never cared about i didn't think lincoln was interesting at all and he had no character outside of his relationship to sky the first two seasons were okay once the um winter soldier reveal came out then it got really good and then the characterization actually became kind of interesting And then season two was helped out by Kyle MacLachlan just being over the top awesome. Yeah. And I think the the other uh, bad guy uh, whose name I can't – I'm drawing a blank uh, who it is. Werner Reinhard, uh, Daniel Whitehall, that guy. I thought he was interesting. I thought that actor did a pretty good job. Yeah, Whitehall was great. Yeah. Um, Played by Reed Diamond uh, who – previously i'd have been on another whedon property had been on dollhouse but i thought whitehall was a good bad guy a lot more interesting than hive in season three or um powers booth did with uh you know the the people in the secret hydra cult in season three season three really was just a snooze job it, it really kind of i thought sucked start to finish it um, was a snooze job but one of the most polarizing episode was one of my favorite episodes of television, which is where uh, Simmons is stuck on the alien planet and doing um, recording what's going on with her. Yeah, while I she, like while she's that episode there. was good. That was a great episode. But yeah. once once they in- introduced Hive as the bad guy, then it was really boring. Um, and Simmons and Fitz is the only relationship that they put the work in to make you care about. So this idea of her talking to Fitz via t- video journal. Yep. It felt like it had weight. Whereas if it was Sky on a planet talking to Lincoln that way, no. it would have fallen completely flat. Yeah, of course. And they had built for two and a half seasons their relationship, Fitz Simmons, that is. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. But again, I was okay with Sky not having an amazing love interest for the same reason I'm okay with Supergirl sometimes just being badass and doing her job or whatever. But yeah, I, I can't disagree with any of that. So, okay, man. Um, well, we're way over time as usual. So thank you so much. Um, I we have am to seeing- release this in two parts. Yeah, that's too much work. Um, <laughs> I, I am seeing uh, Ghost in the Shell um, today. I probably, w- I'll do a quickie review and then I'll probably just leave it at that because I can't disagree with the people who are already predisposed to dislike it because either a they love the property and they think this is not the good interpretation or b it's racist or discriminatory or whitewashing or whatever um and so i won't really be addressing that a whole lot my my uh my quick review um if it turns out to be especially good or bad maybe i'll bring it up next time but uh you guys can look for uh look for that on a bizzlecast quickie 
Um, and thank you, Matt. Thank you, listeners. Any uh, any, anything you're any movies you're seeing this week? Uh, no. Uh, there's nothing really coming down the pike that I'm super waiting for. Uh, All right. Well, uh, I look forward to watching the Tolkien episode of Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. So thanks for that. All right, BizzleCast listeners, we are out.